And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I am sitting here with Paul Farrell. Paul, it's been a while. How the hell are you? Doing good, man. It has been a while. It's um, been a hell of a long while. Now, I listeners know. will think it's only been a week. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the last episode, which would have aired a week ago for them, we teased Kiss of the Vampire. And then here we are this week, talking Kiss of the Vampire. So it's only been a week for them how long has it been since we've actually recorded? We banked some episodes a while ago, and now uh, has it been like a month? Has it been like five weeks, something like that? I think it's been a month. It, it's it's a long time. It, oh, it's been know. painful. You know, I've been I've been sad. I've been missing this. I've I've, I've been missing Hammer Pub, man. I have. Yeah. I gotta say, take uh, a trip to the Hammer Pub. Yeah, well, I need to after the trip that I took. I I, I don't really want to take any more trips at all this year. I, I just got back from Southern Ohio. I drove 15 hours from Southern Ohio back to Florida, uh, pretty much as fast as I could. Uh, don't know why. Florida's terrible, but it is better than Southern Ohio, so there is that. Uh, but yeah, yeah. No, after that, I'm uh, I'm happy to get some drinks in me and watch some classic Hammer Horror. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, I'm ready. I'm always ready for classic Hammer, and uh, drinks sound great. <laughs> Good deal. So, how has last month treated you, man? Have you uh, have you watched anything decent recently? Because I got to tell you, the the seven years I spent up in Southern Ohio recently, um, it, it, it didn't allow me a whole hell of a lot in the way of watching a lot of stuff. So, uh, I don't know. Let's try and I I can probably do about three movies because in the last month and a half I've watched about three movies. <laughs> But uh, so so I'll do I'll do three. I'm sure you probably haven't watched that much. How many in the last like say four to six weeks? How many movies have you watched? Um, man, I uh, not many. Uh, if I had to count, I would say like maybe thirty. Oh, <laughs> okay, maybe many, maybe fuck, many. Fuck you. Thirty. I've watched a lot of movies. I've watched thirty movies. Lot. You got to narrow it down to um, well, three. Well, because I, I, look, I've got to, I've got to do my Christmas movies because it's Christmas time. So I'm doing my regular Christmas movies. Well, I also have to do Christmas horror, and then it's approaching the end of the year, so I got to watch all the quote unquote, you know, good movies from 2020 that I haven't seen yet. So it's, <laughs> well, the, I've been the, the, the trying good, to good movies that you have to ignore otherwise that you don't pay attention. Yeah, to as they right. It's like I, I have to go. Well, I have to go and look at all the like top 10 lists that are posting and then just watch the ones that I haven't seen yet on those that show up on every single list. That way all of our lists can look the same. <laughs> <laughs> we all need to have the same list. So we got to know what those though? movies like, are. So I, we just, I, that way we could just reorganize the same movies. <laughs> every top 10 list that comes out at the end of the year is comprised of the same 15 Roughly. movies. Pretty, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and if you haven't seen all of them, you're an <laughs> asshole. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, and you I can't make this, your list yet. <laughs> no, I you, you know see them all. <laughs> I, we are getting very close to the end of the year episode. It'll be myself, hopefully you, Paul, hopefully uh, Matt Feeney, hopefully uh, Scott Foy, because we do that at the end of every year. But uh, I got to tell you, I'm going to be scrambling to catch up on stuff because I know there are so many great horror movies out there that people have talked about that I haven't seen yet. So uh, I don't know. Maybe my list is going to be a bit wanting or. Um, yeah, maybe maybe I'll just put the Invisible Man like in spots five through ten, you know, on my list, and just call it that, a day. Uh, 
I mean, that's not a bad idea. It's still that is easily one of the best horror movies of the year. Still, even after I've seen everything. <laughs> All right, so let's do. I tell you what, if you can narrow down uh, your your thirty choices that you've seen recently down to three, let's. Uh, I don't know. Thirty's a rough estimate. <laughs> do what? Thirty's a rough estimate. It, you know, it, it, give or take ten. <laughs> I okay to tell you how bad this is going to be, Paul. I'm going to talk about three movies, and one of them is in a horror film. So, you know, I'm just going to throw that okay. out. That's pretty rough, but and, that's fine. <laughs> All right, you're number one. Which one do you want to talk about first? Go! Okay. Um, let's do the one I watched today, uh, Dark and the Wicked. Dark and the Wicked. Um, ha- you haven't seen this, right? I have not. It's Brian Bertino, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, is uh, it... Is it- is it like Strangers level Brian Bertino, or is it like uh, other stuff that he's done since the Strangers level Brian Bertino? Because I and here's the thing: I'm not even knocking him for that. I think he's put out he hasn't put out a bad film yet. But Strangers came out and it was kind of like a an immediate classic. Right. And I haven't really like he hasn't followed through on that promise for me since. So how, how does the dark and the wicked stack up? So it's a very different movie than the strangers. Um, And I would say the, the thing that unites them, like his, his talent for creating and fostering, dread that is very apparent in the the strangers is like on full display in the dark and the wicked and if anything has evolved um i think that the dark and the wicked builds like is it's just a dread machine um it pretty much exists to put sort of an evil a, a sense of evil on display and allow it to kind of slowly creep up on its prey which i guess is kind of like the strangers right in that you know you have you know some some unknown entities or anonymous entities sort of kind of going after these people while they don't necessarily know exactly what's going on you know replace them with something that is supernatural in nature i guess um but still largely ambiguous. Um, and then you kind of have what the dark and the wicked is doing. I really, it's a hard movie to say that I loved it or something along those lines, because it's a very, uh, well, it's, it's dark and it's wicked, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it, it, there isn't a lot of light in the movie. There's not a lot of to grab onto and sort of really warm up to. Um, but in terms of a horror movie that is attempting to scare you and upset you and disturb you, it does that job incredibly well. Um, and is one of the best made movies of the year by far. I mean, it's a, it's a beautifully crafted film. I mean, it's one of those movies where, you can kind of screen grab from almost any scene and it's worthy of framing. You know, it's, it, the lighting is gorgeous. It's, you're constantly on edge. You don't really know what's going on, but you're still sort of there for the story. 
Um, and it delivers on its promise of sort of terror. Um, and I will say it's probably one of, again, one of the scariest movies of the year for sure. Um, and one that will probably stay with you. Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, I, I think it because it's it's kind of a, a scare machine. It, it's what it's there to do, but in a in a very in a more disturbing way than something like something more poppy or studio driven. You know, like like you could say like The Conjuring's a scare machine, but that's like a fun scare machine. This is a one that's designed to make you feel sort of uh, uneasy um it isn't fun in any way <laughs> Good. But okay nor nor was the strangers so right I'm, I'm... but it, yeah exactly but it, but it's very very good like i said it's a it's a tough one it's a it's a very tough like making a top 10 and where where i would put it it i can almost guarantee it it would be in my top 10 but literally it's a movie that could sit at number three or it could sit at nine I mean, it just depends on how I'm feeling when I write that list, if that makes sense. I got you. I'm going to have to check it out. We are uh, we are barreling toward the end of the year, and I feel like I'm running behind on so many movies like that one and, uh, you know, His House on Netflix. And uh, Oh, that, yeah, I saw that too. So, that so many, so many other movies. But I tell you what, Paul, one movie that I have been dying to see, I could not wait to see, easily one of the most anticipated of the year for this viewer was Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor, and I finally managed to snag it on 4K, and I watched it this week. Sweet. Have uh, Have you seen it? I also saw Possessor. I picked oh, up you the saw, Blu-ray you saw when it 30, came out. 30 movies in the last... Uh, yeah, 30, it was 30 one years, of the so. 30. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's there. I saw it somewhere in there. I, you know, Paul, I, I'm a huge David Cronenberg fan. So I remember when uh, his son came on the scene with Antiviral, I was, uh, I was kind of like, oh, you know, what's it going to be like? If it, is his son going to be kind of swimming in the same waters? Is that going to be a good thing? Is that going to be a bad thing? You know, who knows? And I absolutely adored Antiviral because in a way, like tonally, it reminded me of early David Cronenberg, but... Um, even, even though there's a great deal of antiviral that is body horror, he was also wrestling with themes that I think, you know, his his father never really bothered with or cared to back in the day. I loved what antiviral had to say about, uh, you know, uh, um, um, current society's sort of, uh, unhealthy relationship with celebrity, you know, uh, I think that's, it's such a damn good film. So when Possessor was announced after, I mean, my God, this is his sophomore movie but what after seven years something like that um it was a long break yeah i was very excited to see it i saw that trailer it looked amazing um saw that they were releasing it uncut couldn't wait and then i checked out vod i think we talked about this on a prior episode couldn't find it uncut anywhere paul nowhere so i had to wait on the son of a bitching 4k which i'm glad i did because the movie is beautiful but i gotta tell you um, I don't, I'm, I'm still wrestling with how I feel about the movie and here's why mm-hmm. the story I think is, is damn good. I love the concept. I love the hook. I love the basic idea behind the movie. Um, I think his skills as a filmmaker and a stylist have, he's taken an incredible leap in the last seven years. Like it is such a precise movie in so many ways like there's a precision to his direction that i think is 
really wonderful. Um, By the time I got to the end of the movie, it occurred to me that I really couldn't tell you what the hell it was about. And I don't mean story. (laughs) I don't mean story wise at all. I mean, thematically, I don't know if the movie is about anything but what's happening on screen. And I even tried to, I was like, maybe it's talking about identity. Maybe it's talking. And no, not really. Not really. I, I think there are so many surfacey things that you could grab onto and wrestle with that the movie really probably has no interest in. And I'm hoping that you can prove me wrong on that since you've seen the movie. Uh, I, I'm hoping that you can tell me that the movie actually has a great deal of depth. Because currently, after my initial viewing, i got to tell you, I don't see that much. And it kind of bums me out because that's... That's that. That was kind of in the contract, you know, based on his first movie. That's what I expected out of this one, and it seemed like the concept was really sort of rich and kind of invites, you know, uh, 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 wrestling with larger ideas than simply, you know, what the cool sci-fi horror plot is. And yet, it seemed kind of thematically bereft to me. Um, hmm. But please, please tell me I'm wrong. Please tell me you saw something in it um, that I would not. Yeah, I mean, and I respect that take, uh, you know, and I it, I can tell you for me, um, and I'll admit this, when I, so I watched it and I kind of had to like think about it for a day or two um, to really kind of come to terms with my thoughts on it because... There's a lot, it's like, uh, there's a lot that happens in the movie, but also not a lot that happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I remember, it, um, I could, I could sit, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just, real quick, I'll just say, I remember once that, uh, Brady Stanellis talked about how, uh, Cronenberg at one point, his father, David Cronenberg was going to, um, uh, direct an adaptation of American Psycho. And he said something like, he told Ellis that if he were to write the screenplay adaptation of it, the screenplay had to be very short, only like 70 pages or so, simply because he he likes to take his time with the scenes, not just simply in shooting them, but in how he presents them and how he edits them. That, you know, uh, most of the time the uh, the given rule is that for every single page of a screenplay, that equals more or less a minute of screen time. In Cronenberg's case, he said it's more like, eh, for every page, that gets him about a minute and a half of screen time. And if you've read any of the screenplays, like, uh, you know, Crash is what, an hour and 40 minutes, hour and 45? It is a very, very slim screenplay. And that's simply because there isn't, there isn't a great deal of plot. You know, there aren't a great deal of events that happen in that movie. But what does happen, he focuses on, like, with a, a microscope, you know? And I feel like his son is probably not, you know, too different in that regard. I think you're entirely right. You know, not a whole hell of a lot happens in Possessor. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think, for better or for worse, he is his father's son. Like he, his, it felt like. I mean, I'll be. I mean, the one of the compliments I would give it is if you had told me, if I knew nothing about that movie, and you said, "Hey, this is David Cronenberg's new film," I would have said, I would have believed it. <laughs> and I probably would have said it was a return to form, like, <laughs> even though I don't, you know, I don't know that it's as good as The Brood, but it, it, it compared to where we've been, you know, the last couple of years. At any rate, 
Um, I, I don't, I don't feel that it's completely without meaning. I mean, I guess for me, like you, you touched on a few things. I do think the film's exploring whether or not it's successful at that, you know, that I think you could, that's where the argument lies for me. I, I took it as a movie similar to a lot of, uh, other, again, it's going to be weird. Cause it's like other Cronenberg films in general. It just, it felt like a, a, a a modern day redux of sort of what he was doing in movies like scanners and videodrome, where it's kind of about the nature of identity, like humanity in general, our identity, the, and the potentials of how fluid it is. Um, yeah, I could see that. Which is could... something that's very modern, right? Like, I, the fluidity of identity is a very sort of modern thing that's be, being more and more explored uh, as we move forward and and become more open to the idea of that. Um, what's lost when you do it, and but but in a capitalist society that's reliant on technology, um the individual the individuality gets stripped away and then the fluidity of identity can be weaponized um and i i think the movies about the human cost of that from both the blue collar working class and the sort of one percenters so the like juxtaposition between the girl who's sort of like infiltrating the rich family inside of the guy um you know you have you have her disconnect part of that's a class thing because she's a lower class citizen than them so therefore she doesn't she's able to to you know detach from their humanity and and do these terrible things um and they don't feel all that human either because they kind of suck, which is again, a sort of a Cronenberg thing where like most of the characters just kind of (laughs) suck and, and yet we're exploring their humanity. Like there's there's so many thematics, (laughs) but, but, but that's a, that's something that's true in a lot of his father's movies too. Absolutely. Like, I mean, and and I think that's there on purpose. Like there is a charisma even to his worst characters. They're like Max Ren is an asshole, uh, which surely has to be aided by the fact that James Woods plays him, but he's still charismatic. You know, you can't help but watch him. I don't know that I was that drawn to any of the characters. I don't know that I was that drawn to Voss. I don't know that I was that drawn to, you know, her Mark that we spend a lot of time with and tries to fight back in a way. And I, well, I don't think she's a person anymore. You know, I think she's a shell. She's, she's her, her, you know, every time I think the human toll of becoming someone else, right. Which is, there's a lot of subtext to that, I think. And I I think the idea of like, we're so desperate to control things and, you know, control life and death. Like if we were to, do this to people where there's literally nothing left that's her anymore. It's she's just an amalgam of all the people she's been and all of those people are dead. Um, so she's dead, you know? And I think like a lot of that's encapsulated by like the weird scene where like the, the mask, 
you know, where the, where she's he or she or who, whatever you want to say is wearing like the, the weird disjointed stretched out mask of her face, which is, wonderful. um, and I, it's, I it's just this sequence. fucked up sort of like, this is what we are now. Like when we, 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 we're not allowed to be individuals in a world like this. Um, and, and that was really reminiscent to me of, again, like that felt like a video drone kind of thing. I mean, even though the technology isn't like being inserted, inserted into body. Well, it is uh, because wherever she is, there's like, you know, shit being driven into her brain. Um, and so it, it, I, I do think it was exploring those ideas. I don't know that it was, was it exploring it or because, you know, it's funny, everything that you mentioned right now, the movie that you're describing is the movie that I want to see, but I wonder how much of it is the movie that he made and how much of it is, and I'm not knocking the movie for it. Maybe, maybe certainly movies do this that are worthwhile, but I, I wonder if the movie itself is wrestling with any of that as opposed to simply presenting a scenario that allows you, the viewer to project onto it. Cause I don't know that the movie that I saw wrestled with any of that stuff. But the movie that you're describing to me right now is the movie that I really wish he had made. Well, I I think I think he I don't know. I think by putting these ideas forth and and you can't and I also think like you can't um, s- sort of separate it out from his father's filmography either, whether he wants that or not. Like, no, that's just no, no. And, and but I think because of that, there's a level of it. The 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 character Voss is such a blank slate as a character, really. I mean, she she is and she isn't. It's not really her fault, but it begs the audience to project like these sorts of feelings onto her. Like, I think it's like okay, this character's in this position. These things are happening to her. She's losing her humanity. There's a lot of interesting ideas that can be explored there. Think and and uh, challenging the audience to think about that while she's dismantling someone else's life who doesn't deserve that, but also like, isn't a super sympathetic. I mean, I guess the, the woman he's screwing over is sympathetic, but her father's such a piece of shit and they're so rich that you just feel like, okay, well, why, why should I care about these people? But that's also like just making you feel that way is challenging an aspect of our own humanity. Like, like the fact that depending on what class you are is going to determine how sympath- sympathetic you are potentially to different characters of other classes, um, you know, and those types of behaviors and what's acceptable and what isn't. It, it, it's more begging the audience to think about these things rather than tell them the answer. I, and I mean, and I, I'm giving him credit, like more credit than I would afford other filmmakers Probably (laughs) the reason why is the, the, the technical prowess on display is so good. The movie is so well-made and it's so beautiful. And the filmography filmography, the, the photography is so evocative that I'm okay with saying like, well, the story doesn't have to, you know, introduce these ideas in meaningful ways for them to be meaningful because of the visuals. And I think that's what people are responding to so much is that it's such a a visual feast um, that makes you think about a lot of these ideas 
that I feel like after I feel like in a couple of years after I've seen it a few times, I will have a lot more to say about it. Right now, it's it's just kind of sinking in. But I do think it it's it's putting forth these ideas about identity and capitalism and, you know, our dependency on technology and, and that loss of individuality that, that happens in that mix. Um, but I think it's, it's pulling on the audience to do more of the legwork than a lot of his father's films. I, I hope so. And I hope with, you know, I, it wouldn't be a hard movie to rewatch at all simply because the story itself I think is, is gripping enough. You know, I don't mind jumping back into that world again, as brutal as it can be sometimes, but you know, I'm reminded of uh, Children of Men, which is a movie that is also incredibly well made. Like, it's beautifully made. It's very well acted. And it's a movie that was very well thought of, but I remember watching it back in the day and thinking, like, yeah, you're setting out this question, um, which is why can humanity no longer have children? You know, why are women no longer giving birth? And in the first act... Uh, you know, some some potential, you know, much like uh, in Night of the Living Dead, you know, people guess as to what the reason is for this, uh, you know, this issue, this concern, but it's never answered. And here's the thing, in Night of the Living Dead's case, it doesn't matter that it's not answered, uh, because that's not really what the story is about. With Children of Men, you know, that that could have been such a rich theme to play with, but instead, it's content to be a chase story. Like, at its heart, Children of Men is only about getting from point A to point B to point C. But they throw that sort of bone out to the audience early on to make you think, like, well, clearly this is about so much more. But what? You know, it it never bothers to actually give you anything to unpack. And that's what my big concern is with Possessor. Which is that it, it lays all of that stuff out there, but it mines it for plot and little little else. But that said, just having this conversation with you makes me excited about revisiting it. So I'm hoping when I watch it again, I have a completely different view on it. But I don't know. At the moment, I just I like I said, it was my one of my most anticipated this year, and it ultimately left me kind of cold. Yeah, I don't know. I I did really like it. Um, it still worked for me quite a bit. Um, I, you know, I, I agree that, I mean, my argument, my one last argument to that is like, if it was all for plot, I mean, it's a movie with very little plot, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's, there's not much to the story. I mean, sure. Things happen in it, but like, I could summarize the whole movie in a sentence, <laughs> like exactly what happens and how it ends. You know, I, I, maybe plot time. isn't the right word. Maybe, but I mean, I, I mean, I, no, I'm not like series of, you know, series of actions, I guess sure. might like, be like more you, accurate. <laughs> yeah. You could say like, Oh, it's a cool horror sci-fi thing. Like it, more feeding the cool visuals and like weirdness on display than an actual message. But I, I think that, I think it has a, well, I, I don't know that it's trying to say one specific thing. I think it's trying to, draw out conversation like this um you know and i get that and i think that's perfectly valid for uh, but then ultimately isn't it still hollow if that's all it's doing because you know for example you you have a setup where a woman is 
sort of entering a man's body, you know, or, you know, that is part of her job is that she can leap from body to body and that she has, you know, that's an industry, you know, she is being weaponized in that way. But you have these amazing sequences where she is inside his body as he is actually making love with a woman. And she imagines yeah. herself, her own body, only with an erect penis, you know. And it's yeah. like, okay, that's really fascinating. Right. But it doesn't do anything with that. It's a visual. Oh, it's a neat but, idea, but it doesn't wrestle with any idea beyond that. It could have said so many interesting things about gender, but instead it... it, it I guess but what just I feel by is, is that showing that image, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, I think I think the mere existence of that visual. I I, I truly think that Brandon Cronenberg is going to be more of a visual storyteller than anything else, right? I think his movies. It feels like if they're gonna, if this is indicative of what his filmography will become. I think he's looking at film as truly a visual art form and, and he's going to try to evoke ideas and conversation from visual, more from visuals and less from story. Um, you know, like, and I think of like Stanley Kubrick, right? Like 2001, there's not a lot of like story stuff (laughs) to draw out conversation. It's visuals that are, evoking ideas and emotions um and you know sight sound combinations um and i think that you know this is a movie that does something similar in horror that that did in science fiction in in some ways where or not that movie specifically but that kind of conceptual filmmaking where it's it's less about having an explicit idea explored and more about a smorgasbord of sort of conflicting ideas on display to make you feel something that is relevant to our, our modern world. And this is a movie that's challenging a lot of thoughts and concepts around identity and sexuality um, and individuality in the face of it being monetized and weaponized. Because I think what he's suggesting is as we become the dangers of thinking that the fluidity of ourselves is becoming more accepted and assimilated is that our society could then use that against us in ways that we're not prepared for. Um, And that's very in line with with the Cronenberg (laughs) ideology, you know, that's always been there. I love that idea. Again, I don't know that it's it's, and I'm not trying. Here's the thing: I'm not arguing with you because I no, actually, I know I, I envy yeah. you. I'm not arguing against your take. I envy you for it. I just the movie that I watched felt yeah. like felt not like it was that. more. No, no, no. It, it felt like it was, and I see what you're saying. And here's the thing: I would be. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not arguing in the hopes that I'll be like, well, clearly I'm right, you know, because that's, that's utterly pointless. You no, know, I it's know. not really, yeah. a I, point. I, but I'm, what, not, I'm the same way. Like I, you know, this, I, this is more my take. I hope that I'm able to pop the movie in and have a Eureka moment. I would be, I would be thrilled to be able to pop onto the next uh, podcast and say, Paul, I watched it and I got everything you were saying. I just, right now coasting off of the first viewing, I see a movie that is content to wrestle with style or not even wrestle with style, but to present style over substance 
Okay. And yet, have we, the audience members, believe that the style is the substance? Now, here's mm-hmm. the thing. I It might very well be just that, and it flew over my head on the first viewing. I'm actually hoping that's the case. But as it is right now, it, I, I can definitely say that it wasn't antiviral for me, which I still think is one of the best debuts in, in ages. You know, I would put it up there with uh, Vincent and Moorhead's uh, resolution as far mm-hmm. as, like, just one hell of a great filmmaking de- debut. But, uh... Speaking of which, where the hell is Synchronicity uh, or Synchronic or whatever the hell it's called? Like, I, where, where I, uh, is that? I, 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 I saw I saw Synchronic uh, like a year and a half up. ago. No. <laughs> I saw it at Fantastic Fest. Damn. And I saw it with the directors. They were there in the theater with me. <laughs> and I actually oh. met them afterwards. Fuck. They were really nice. That's, that's not good, man. <laughs> so it it's, it's true. Salt in the wound, man. You're no, uh, the Synchronic's, you're... Synchronic's really good. <laughs> It was a really good movie. We're not talking about Synchronic. Uh, I could talk I about Synchronic. No. It's been a while since I've seen I will, it. I will I turn this podcast it. around right now, Paul. Uh, you know what? You're just mad because I saw it. That's, I mean, yeah. it's not my yeah, fault. I, yes. Yes, I am. I'm, exactly I'm not lording it over you. No, I am. I'm being a jerk about it. I yeah. apologize. Um, <laughs> they are among my favorite filmmakers. So that is yeah. also my most anticipated this year. Yeah, no, I get that. And it is coming out. They did just announce a Blu-ray, I think. Um, our, our LJ or whatever. the. I think, they... I think it's pronounced Cinestate. Is that, is that how it's pronounced? Oh, is that, is that who's, who's doing it? I don't know. Sure. I, I, they released all of Cinestates before. I don't know if they still do. Okay. I don't know. If yeah, State I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I do know that I saw a Blu-ray cover art on Twitter and I think i retweeted it because i was really happy it was finally getting released so um it is coming soon i think all right man uh, anyway your, uh, what is your we spent a lot of time on possessor man, man that was yeah, that was uh so i got uh, what's so the, many movies um, hit me with another okay uh, i'll give you a choice should i talk about anything for jackson or the wolf of snow hollow you know what hit me with wolf of snow hollow Wolf of Snow Hollow. Okay. Um, did you see that? I have not. I haven't even seen, uh, is it Thunder Road, Jim Cummings' first movie? I got to admit, uh, Paul, I'm a petty bitch at times. Um, I uh, Jim Cummings, I think, when he first came on the scene, he followed pretty much everybody on film Twitter. And then at a certain point, near as I can tell from what everybody has said, he unfollowed pretty much everybody on film Twitter. It was kind of like uh, everyone was left going like uh, – well, what the hell did I do? But no, it's it's it, it, I don't think it was personal. It's a weird thing. But everybody was talking about that like a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know, man. Like, I, the same thing happened to me. Like, I was just like, oh, this cool indie guy, you know, that I've heard a lot about and everybody seems to dig is following me on Twitter out of the blue. Well, that's kind of nice. I Oh, he unfollowed me. Fuck, was it? Was it something I said? I was think, all the, was um, it all the Trump bashing? What the hell? Um, <laughs> is he MAGA? What I, the fuck I, is going I, on here? Don't you think that, though, sometimes, like, especially... Uh, somebody like that who like wants to gain a following will just like follow a thousand people, get all the follows from that, and then like unfollow those people. Well, Don't I you think you that's I th- I, no, I absolutely think that's the case, but I tell you what, had he not done that, I might have watched both of his fucking movies by now. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I get it. Um, I don't know if he followed me or unfollowed me. I don't. Well, it happened no idea. so fast, uh, Paul. He may very well have, and you wouldn't have noticed. He might have, and maybe he unfollowed, and that's you know what I all is forgiven. I will bury the unfollow hatchet uh, 
as as much as it pains me. Um, I did not see his first film. Uh, I was generally unfamiliar with him. The reason I even sought the movie out is, you know, I kind of, it's called Wolf of Snow Hollow. There's a wolf on the poster. I, I figured it was a werewolf movie. Uh, and I like werewolf movies. And I heard from, I think Elric Kane gave it praise on uh, on his new Colors of the Dark podcast with Rebecca McKendry, which, um, which I'm very much marvelous. enjoying. Yes. Yeah, I really enjoy it. It's great. It's uh, Shockwaves 2.0 uh, uh, in, in a good way. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I VOD'd it. And um, it's so it's a hard movie to talk about because it's a movie that could be spoiled. Um, so I won't go deep, but what I will say is I really liked it. Um, it played very much to my personal tastes. Um, it is a quirky, small town, snowbound serial killer movie. Um, that sort of where the serial killer is like a werewolf. Um, and it kind of feels like, like a Coen brothersy kind of take on, on the story. So imagine, imagine like kind of a Fargo esque, um, without, you know, like situation where cops are investigating a series of brutal murders and they don't really, they're not really willing to accept that despite the evidence, it's probably a werewolf. So they just think it's like a person doing this. Um, but you as the audience member are sort of savvy enough to know like, okay, this is something more than that. Um, and that's where a lot of the fun comes in. That's where a lot of the quirkiness comes in at the same time. It's very disturbing. Uh, it, it's kind of depressing. Um, the main character is incredibly flawed and sort of, uh, falling into alcoholism that he had previously, you know, outside of the four walls of the movie gotten past. So his life is sort of crumbling around him. Um, and yet it's still delightfully amusing. <laughs> it's, it's a very weird movie tonally, and I'm not quite sure how they managed to accomplish it, but it's very enjoyable. And none of it would work if the ending didn't come together. You know, like that's the whole, the whole movie. I was really worried. <laughs> so I'm like, I really like this. This is really fun. And I really like what it's doing. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't like pay off in some significant way, or if they don't find a good way to explain what's going on, it, the whole movie will fall apart. And I've read reviews, I'll just say it now, I've read reviews that completely feel like the ending does not deliver at all. And I've read reviews where people think it's just the greatest thing. And I will say I landed on it's the greatest thing. And I think the movie's amazing. And I think the ending not only works, but like makes the whole movie. Um, so I guess you're kind of either on board or you're not. You know, I guess which is true of a lot of movies, but this one seems to be pretty divisive amongst people who either like it or hate it. But overall, it seems to me that more people like it than hate it. And for me, I it's one of my absolute favorites of the year. Like it'll end up being top five for sure. 
Um, so I really liked it. I'd really recommend it. But again, I tend to lean into horror. I, I like horror comedy. I like dark comedy. Um, and I like movies that subvert their subgenre. And I felt like this was a really subversive way to make a werewolf movie, which I would definitely classify it as. Um, but it's not, you know, it's, it's unlike any other movie werewolf movie that you've ever seen, um, because of how it's set up and how it plays out. So, um, yeah, I really, really liked it and I really recommend it. And it is Robert Forster's last performance. So you get to see, uh, a nice little Robert Forster role. Which is reason enough to check it out. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure so. I will at some point. I need to uh, I need to see it before I, I guess finalize my top ten of the year because I, I imagine there eh, probably stands a pretty good chance of uh, landing on there. I mean that and his house. I imagine um, his relic house is, is another that I probably oh yeah, relic's really good. Yeah, Dark and the Wicked. I'm falling behind here, man. I feel like I've watched a lot of movies, a lot of TV this year. Did you then... watch the Wretched yet? Need to watch no. the wretched. No, I haven't seen. Gotta watch either. the wretched, man. You gotta uh, watch the wretched. That's still one of my favorites. I and no one's talking about that one. That's gonna be the one on my list. That's not on anybody else's list. Is that gonna like, be your one that you need? Like the one that's not in the fifteen that everybody else is gonna choose that sets yours yeah, apart. Yeah, mine's the wretched. Um, well, my favorite film here is spontaneous. Easily, like neither. That's another. Wretched. Now, is that a horror movie or not? I'm gonna watch you know it what? no matter what. Jinx, I, I, I struggled. I struggled with that when I was because I have to come up with my top ten horror, and I'm fucking calling it a horror movie. I don't care. Teenagers are exploding in it. There's blood and gore everywhere. Like most of the movie is like a teenage coming of age film, but I'm, it's fucking built around people exploding. I'm calling it horror. It's okay. the that's it. It's my favorite horror movie of the year. I don't care. Well, it's great. I, I, I should um, note that I watch more than horror movies, but I only ask at this point because I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to do a podcast on just the best movies of the year. So at this point, like the crunch for me is going to be watching all of the genre stuff that I think probably yeah. needs to be seen. Well, uh, so I'll throw spontaneous on there. Yeah. And it's funny because I'll tell you this, regardless of whether we're talking horror or films, it is, it's just my number one. It would be my number one on both lists. Um, although I'm not even sure I've seen, a non-horror movie this year. Like, I don't think I have, like, unless it, like, unless there was like a kids movie or something. Like I haven't, you know, with my kids, but I, I haven't watched any dramas that are like 2020, you know, or action. I don't think, I mean, but spontaneous is phenomenal. And, and I felt like when I first saw it, like not a lot of people were talking about it, but now it, it seems like it's showing up on a lot of people's lists, but it, it is easily my favorite movie this year. Not even a question. Good. All right. I will check it out. Um, yeah, you know, it's fun. I, funny. I, 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 as far as genre movies go, like I, yeah, I mostly watch horror stuff too. Uh, television has been a little more varied. I, uh, when I was stuck in Southern Ohio, I did watch, uh, and this is going to be old news for a lot of people. I think it's like a year old by this point. But I did watch season one of Hunters on Amazon Prime. And I'm not that's not my next choice to talk about. I'm only throwing it out here for a moment. But have you seen it? I have not seen it. It's good. It's basically it's set in 1977. And it's about a group of Jewish uh, Nazi hunters oh, in New York City. And yes. uh, Al Pacino. <laughs> Al Pacino's in it. And he is, he's just having the best time. Uh, which is... A delight to see. It is such a weird fucking show, man. At times, it is <laughs> as heavy as 
the most grim World War II documentary you've ever seen. You know, it's 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 Schindler's List heavy at times. Oh wow! But then, but then at other times, it's like a bright, poppy, fun, borderline superhero tale. At other times, it feels like a '70s grindhouse flick. Like it is tonally, <laughs> it is a mess, but in the best possible way. Um, and where it goes to by the final episode, I think is pretty amazing. There's one major twist that pissed a lot of people off, as I understand it, and is probably problematic as hell. Uh, but I, I, I gotta admit, just on pure storytelling terms, like I, I on that level, it it kind of kicked me on, you know, in the ass. Like, uh, I, I am a few drinks in, I apologize for the stuttering and slurring. Um, but no, no, it's It's very good. But what's, what's weird about it is, and I'm really not going to talk about this at length. This is going to be the last thing that I say about it, but hunters is an Amazon prime original as is the boys, as is the man in the high castle. That's three Amazon prime original television shows that all have Nazis, as their main villains. So, you know, Amazon prime is on it as far as being timely with their productions. I think, um, you know, not a moment too soon as far as a lot of these go, but, um, yeah. and especially, I mean, the end of hunters, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's set in 1977, but it features a, uh, blonde haired, blue eyed, uh, little Aryan fuck shouting, uh, Jews will not replace us at one point. That is, eerily reminiscent of, you know, the cadence of what is being shouted in the streets of, you know, Charlottesville and all the footage, you know, that happened just a couple of years ago. So I don't know. It's uh it's a damn good show. Uh, well worth watching. And apparently it's getting a second season, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. Uh, what I, I want like to talk about, about it. <laughs> I did. I snuck it in there. I that's why. Um, no, no, no. I... What I want to talk about is, <sighs> have you seen, Shudder's Castle Freak remake yet. <sighs> I haven't. And I meant to watch it because I knew you had watched, watched it. You watched 30 and... movies and you didn't watch the I one. Know. Well, okay. Movie. Honestly, the problem is I didn't hear the best things. And so, like, anytime <sighs> I sat down to watch a movie, I was like, well, I could watch that or <laughs> I could watch this other one that I've heard was really good. You know, or I could watch Gremlins for the 30th time you know and gremlins needs to get watched and gremlins uh, gremlins is a tough act to beat that's a fact yeah Um, i mean but no i apologize i I did not do my homework and watch castle freak no it's fine it's fine i i gotta tell you paul i i'm a huge Stuart gordon fan i love the original castle freak um one of my if not it wasn't my first fangory but it was one of my first fangories i read um uh basically a making of from the act point of view the guy who played um uh georgia in the original uh, castle freak in fangoria it was like his diary and he basically made low budget filmmaking sound like the coolest fucking thing on the planet it's the thing that kind of made me want to be a, a, a filmmaker like reading that in seventh period study hall my nose in an old fangoria i think it was issue 148 151 somewhere around in there and so uh, the, the first castle freak holds a very special place in my heart I was really looking forward to this remake. Um, I actually had the um, the screenwriter of the film on this podcast uh, earlier this spring, uh, Kathy Charles, who uh, great person, uh, wonderful conversation we had about Pet Cemetery. 
So I, I, you know, it's a remake of one of my favorite movies. You know, one of my past guests on the show wrote the screenplay. Shudder has been knocking it out of the park with their acquisitions. You know, the stuff that they've just been dropping out of nowhere this year. I mean, my God. Yeah. Um, I, and I honestly believe this. I think... And I'm not just saying this because, you know, I had a one hour long conversation with her, you know, nine months ago. I honestly believe that on the page in the screenplay, you know, just accounting for that, that this story was probably pretty great. And, you know, because it takes the setup from the original movie, which itself is based on a Lovecraft story, which has nothing to do with his, uh, you know, Cthulhu mythos. And what she does with it, she actually takes that story and then she draws the Lovecraft, you know, sort of Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos into it. Uh, mm. And there's a fun mid-credits nod that's almost like an MCU Easter egg in the middle of the credits that nods to, you know, the film adaptation of another, you know, uh, Lovecraft story, which I will not ruin for you. I will not spoil that for you or listeners. But um, but on the page, if you were to break it down, I think it's it would look very attractive. Um, I watched the movie the night that it came out and I got to say the first 45 minutes fucking had me, Paul, like the, the, the characters are interesting. Nobody is, you know, it's kind of like we were talking about possessor. Um, nobody is necessarily super likable, but they're all very watchable and they feel very real in a weird way. Um, you know, it's stylish. Uh, there is, uh, it's beautifully shot the first 40, 45 minutes of it. Um, you know, it, it's moody as hell. There's this great opening sequence set in, um, oh, uh, this nightclub that, uh, you know, there's like a gunship song, Dark All Day. Plum- Jinx, your audio dropped out. But what's weird is, is why, okay, I'm hearing weird beeping. Paul, are you still there? Yeah, you dropped out for like 10 seconds. I just didn't well, hear anything. And well, I was like, fuck. hello? I've been talking. <laughs> we'll see if it recorded. Yeah, we'll uh, but no, no, it's, so it had me, you know, in the first 45 minutes, it really did. And then it really started treading water and just, it felt like it didn't, it didn't have any drive, you know, it, it lost the momentum that it had from the first, uh, you know, act and a half as it were. Um, but weirdly enough is that while it's doing that, it's also losing its damn mind. Um, there is some crazy shit that happens in the last half that I feel like, okay, so the movie is directed by Tate Steinsek, who is a great makeup effects artist. Um, and I remember back in the day, I don't know if you remember the show, I think it was on sci-fi, um, but face off, which was kind of like the uh, the makeup uh, 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 contest show. Do you remember yeah, that at all? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Okay, so I think he was on the second season. He was like one of my favorite contestants. He, the, the guy just seems cool as hell. And his work is fucking fantastic. So the fact that this was going to be his directorial debut was even more exciting to me. And after seeing the first 40, 45 minutes of the movie, you know, it, it's gorgeous. It's moody. Like, I, I thought that he was really killing it. But the 
problem is is that when the movie starts going really crazy, it feels like he kind of loses his grip on the material. And there is one big reveal. Let's there. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to spoil it for your viewers or listeners, potential viewers. But there is a a sequence in the bedroom uh, with uh, with a couple uh, having sex, and one of them is blindfolded. And a third party enters the room. And that's all I'll say about it. But the thing is, is that there is a big reveal in that moment. And I feel like, again, I feel like on the page, I feel like in the script, it could have played so unbelievably creepy and so shocking. And instead, the way it's presented in the movie is just kind of like, Hey, here's the thing that's happening. Let me just point the camera at the thing that's happening and show you. Like, there's no finesse to it whatsoever. There's no, you know, it. it, And I feel like, you know, and then there is this weird sort of feeling. It's almost like two different people directed the last half of the movie. There are dialogue scenes that are shot and lit beautifully. And then there's stuff that's just flat and uninteresting. And then... So by the time you get to the the finale, which is just utterly fucking bonkers, it feels like he has no grip on the material whatsoever. There's no sort of... It just... it. I don't even know how to describe it, man. Like, I felt like I was losing my mind a little bit while watching the last ten minutes of the movie. It's like, am I really seeing what I'm fucking seeing here? Um, but not in a good way. Not in, yeah. like, a, a color out of space sort of way. So ultimately, like, and then, you know, when you get to the uh, the movie ends uh, in this utterly insane spot, but then halfway through the credits, there is this little tag, this little Easter egg, like, again, like an MCU setup for a following movie. You know, it's the, uh, you know, Sam Jackson walking in at the end of Iron Man, you know, promising the Avengers initiative. That's kind of what happens in the middle of the credits of Castle Freak, where you're kind of promised these further Lovecraft movies that are going to take place in the same world, you know? Yeah. But it's shot so poorly. And again, reading it on, I, I can't say enough about this, reading on the page, the idea behind the scene would be like, oh, 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 oh that is going to be awesome. But the way it's shot and edited, it's just kind of like, Oh, that's fucking dumb. Um, and it's, it's such a bummer because there was so much promise there. Um, but I don't know it like that. I, I was really, really wanting to see that film. I was really rooting for it. And instead, like I just, it, it, I, it didn't connect with me at all. It introduced me to gunship. So I've been listening to a lot of their stuff this past week. So, you know, there's that, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would recommend that you have to, uh, I don't know that you should rush out and see it anyway. So you were right, Paul. Yeah, that was kind of my thought from everything I was hearing. And this uh, sort of solidifies that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I can't wait to. uh, I kind of can't wait to see what everybody involved with that movie does next. Because I and that sounds like a weird thing to say after kind of sort of bashing the movie. But, you know, I the next movie that Kathy Charles writes, I'm going to check out because, again, I don't. 
not only do I not fault her for the movie that resulted, I actually think she probably wrote a very good screenplay, and I can't wait to see what she writes next. Tate Seinzek is, you know, he definitely shows promise at various points throughout this movie, so, you know, I can only hope that he's going to grow and get better with each subsequent film, so... I got my fingers crossed for them. I'm, I'm wishing them well. I'm not bashing either of them. I, 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 I really want to see what they do next. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like some of the ideas were in the right place. So, yeah, I think that's good. All right, Paul, we're like an hour in. Uh, I don't know how many movies we've talked at this point. I know how many drinks I've had. I'm not sure how many movies we've talked. Uh, <laughs> do, you have, do you have a final movie you want to throw out there? Or uh, do you want to dive into Kiss of the I... Vampire? I think we could we could start talking about Hammer on this Hammer podcast. I think we that's probably, fair. We probably we could do that. When when do we talk Hammer on this? Hammer <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there'll a... be plenty of time to talk other movies when we get to the Hammer movie. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you're not wrong. All right, okay, folks out there in listener land, I am a little tipsy at this point, which is you know that's that's pretty much where we've got to be when we start Hammer Pub. We are about to press play on The Kiss of the Vampire. So, tell you what, no matter which version you're watching, whether it be on DVD, Blu-ray, streaming, let's go ahead and queue it up to second zero together. We'll do a countdown and press play together. Paul, before we do that, what are you watching this on? I'm guessing you have that keen new Scream Factory Blu-ray. You do. You do, don't you? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I have the Scream Factory Blu-ray. I have the DVD, but here's the thing. I actually took the DVDs out of storage. I had a storage unit up north in southern Ohio. Uh, so I have it with me now, but it is buried in boxes that I'm kind of <sighs> kind of staring at right now. They're just looking at me, wondering why they haven't been unpacked yet. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Just going to let them sit there. Uh, so I am, because uh, I'm lazy and because it's late and because I didn't think about doing it in time, I did not dig out the DVD. I actually rented this on Amazon Prime, which is an option for audiences out there. So uh, if you want to check it out that way, you're more than welcome to. But now that we're all on the same page, let's do the countdown and press play together. Ready, everyone? Let's go. Five, four, three, two, one, and play. And I am muted this time. I know it's been a problem <clears throat> fast. That's okay. All right. I'm actually being given the FBI anti-piracy warning, so... Oh. Well, hold shit. on. Do I, I need to skip ahead? I need to skip oh, ahead. I can go back. No, Tell hang on. Okay. Get... okay, new Universal logo. Is okay. Right now? Golly, right. it's pretty. I'm there. Okay, big U, big N, big I-V-E-L. Oh, it, it's it's going to spell Universal, isn't it? There it is. You... Are you at the tree yet? Uh, no, I'm not at the tree. Okay. Ooh, did you know Universal is a Comcast company? All right, tell me when we get to the tree. Okay. <laughs> Universal <laughs> International. Okay, the old school Universal logo. Yeah, that's I where mine starts. That's fading out, and now I'm on a tree. Okay, I'm at the tree. All right, cool. All right, All right folks, if you're out there in listener land... <laughs> Just yeah, pause as you need to or don't. We're at a tree right now. Let's just let's just try and make the best of this. Um, okay, they are carrying a coffin. Yes, yes, they are. Um, yeah, so this is a really this movie is really interesting uh, in in the the Hammer Vampire milieu. Um, originally intended to be the third Dracula movie uh, after Brides. Um, 
Universal wanted another Dracula. They didn't care if Dracula was in it because Dracula wasn't in the second one and was still really popular. So that's why it was written sort of around Dracula. But Lee was supposed to make an appearance at the end originally. Um, but at any rate, uh, you imagine uh, yeah. So the disciples of Dracula or the cult of Dracula, you know, I, I still yeah. don't know why they didn't do that. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's such a cool idea. I mean, well, this movie pushed the boundaries in a lot of ways and really carried Hammer forward into the occult because this was the movie that started to get the BBFC to relax a lot of their rules about the occult in film. Um, cause this was like post even, uh, this was after mask of red death, right? Cause that was a movie that suffered a ton of cuts at the BBC because of all the cult stuff, but they used the vampire mythos to hide the fact that it was an occult. And there we have a uh, professor Zimmer up on the cliff face, um, who is like the antithesis of Peter Cushing's Van Helsing. Um, such an interesting character. A very striking introduction there, you know, stood in silhouette against the two trees. Well, yeah, I mean, instead of a pious man, you know, good versus evil, he's like a angry drunk, (laughs) you know, who's just pissed off that this horrible thing happened to his daughter. Um, This opening is so striking. I adore this opening. Um, It's great, but you know what? It, It totally, you know, this... This is a vampire movie. This is a Dracula film. That's not really a Dracula film, but it's a Dracula film that is not directed by Terrence Fisher. Instead, we have Don Sharp directing and Sharp is a fantastic filmmaker, but he is also presenting the story in an entirely different way from Fisher. You know, the, yes. the, the men's styles couldn't be more different. He is kind of a, I, I, I wouldn't say he's, without style he surely does have his own style you know but it's it's not as stagey it's not as you know there is a um how do i want to say this um when you look at terence fisher's style it's very sort of heightened you know there is a kind of uh whether or not he actually drew from comic books there is kind of a comic book feel like an this... easy comics feel to yeah, that is great. Um, Sorry, I, uh, this just, I love the the shovel through the coffin. And he just walks away, and the blood bubbling up. Oh, adore that. Love it. Such a dark beginning. Kensington Sorry. Gore. You gotta love it. No, you're good. Um, but there is, you know, with Terrence Fisher's work, there is kind of this storybook feel to it, where he is creating another world that's simply based upon ours. Well, and with Fisher... Don... Sorry, go. No, I was just Fisher always said that he made fairy tales for adults. You yeah. Know? Like he didn't make horror movies. He made fairy tales. Um, and I think that was very, you know, apparent in his, in his stylistic choices. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, with Don Sharp, when you watch it, I, this is his first hammer film and he would go on to make more for them. And, and his and first horror movies. movie, he had never yeah. done horror before. And I mean, if you've seen his Curse of the Fly or Psychomania, you know that he is, he's one hell of a director. He's a really interesting cat. You know, he's got, he definitely has a style all his own. But what I love about him, what makes this quite different from, uh, you know, the previous Fisher joints is the fact that he very much shoots the real world. You know, he drags all the supernatural, all the crazy stuff into, you know, a, a world that's a little less affected, a little less 
heightened than what Fisher presents to us. And I'm cool with that. You know, I'm, uh, I kind of like that and it definitely fits this story. You know, I don't know that I could see him (laughs) directing horror of Dracula. I don't know that I could see him, you know, giving me a better brides of Dracula, but equally, I don't know that I would have needed Terrence Fisher to tell this story. I think Don Sharp was kind of perfectly suited for this particular material. I agree. And I think that's also one of the things that, again, this, this really changed the direction of hammers slate because it, you know, Fisher was very interested in good and evil, you know, the, the, the course of the human soul and how to save it or what it's capable of. Whereas sharp was a lot more interested in moral ambiguity. He wanted to look at the gray areas. Um, And I think that's some of his realism. Uh, You know, he did documentary stuff before this movie. Um, and I think it, it comes through and, and that moral ambiguity would go on to inform and the popularity of this movie, because this movie was hugely successful. And this came right after three duds, three huge duds, all directed by Fisher. So <laughs> I don't think it's much of a coincidence that they didn't use Fisher. I mean, Fisher was doing a different movie, but they didn't offer this to him. Um, you know, this was after, uh, you know, two faces of Dr. Jekyll, curse of the werewolf and phantom of the opera, which all underperformed, which all lost and you know, money for Hammer. And there are two great movies out of those three, three that those really three, three two great, great films that should have been hits. Three great movies. Uh, but, this um... scene was supposed, it was written to be <laughs> shot at night. It was supposed to be a nighttime scene. And they changed it today for just the practicality um, because it would have been too difficult to shoot at night. And I actually think it's one of the most atmospheric scenes in the movie. Um, And I think it's a thing that stands out against the other vampire films because very rarely do you have a moody atmospheric sequence in a hammer vampire film that is bright, beautiful daylight. Well, this um, is this is the filmic equivalent of Christopher Lee's introduction in Horror of Dracula. This is yeah. him appearing at the top of the stairs and yeah. greeting Harker well, with him a smile. walking into yeah. the the daylight, that fog that he's just walking into yeah. down the road. It's so beautiful. This is and the yet movie so eerie. Yeah, it's and like, and this is uh, Alan uh, Alan Hume's Hume cinematography, um, and he's like. He did a couple other movies. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on like like early uh, like a, a Great Expectations movie and uh, something called The End of the Affair. I think that was in the like in the fifties that was really lauded for its cinematography. This is um, another thing too. This moment with the wind, where you know it's announcing in capital letters that this is very much this is not a stage. You know, yeah. this is not, you know, uh, we are very much in the real world, as it were. And I love that. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say he went on to shoot, uh, was it Return of the Jedi, I think, and uh, several Bond movies. So he, he ended up having a pretty big career, and he's a just a great cinematographer. Um, and then, yeah, here's our villain who's hiding in the shadows and watching through a telescope. Um, you know, which is a very different, again, a, a different type of villain. He's more of a, a, a leader, you know, that's hiding in the background, that manipulating events rather than somebody who's directly willing to want to control the situation. Distinctly different. He's, uh, he's the head of a cult. You know, he's mm-hmm. very much the story's uh, Keith Raniere. Um, you know, I, I believe he would play volleyball. 
with a bunch of cultists. I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, <laughs> volleyball. I I could see Doctor Ravna like getting his volleyball on. No, I really i i I do love the introductions of all the characters here and how like you know it happens in short little bursts in this opening act, and I I kind of adore that. Um, and I love you know it, it's. Each one of the vampires in the three vampire movies that we've had from Hammer up until this point, you know, they've given their villains entirely different types of introductions. You know, you think about, uh, again, Dracula in his uh, first moments in Horror of Dracula. You know, you, you're expecting Bela Lugosi, but instead you get kind of like a, a warm, you know, uh, sort of greeting from this guy. You know, mm-hmm. um, he's kind of charming. He's handsome. He's tall. He's imposing. Uh, but he isn't, you know scary as it were you know not until later uh then you think about the kind of the borderline pathetic character that baron meinster cuts in you know the the first few moments that we see him you know in a in a kind of romantic way certainly but when we first see him in brides of dracula but here you know kind of from the very beginning that ravna is a villain you know it definitely underscores that he is the heavy in the film but mm-hmm. in an entirely different way from the first two, I think. And uh, I don't know. It sets this up to be a very different tale, which ultimately it really, really is. This is markedly different, I think, from, uh, you know, Brides and Horror. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's a different – one thing it doesn't get a lot of credit for, or especially at the time, is that it's a different sort of subgenre, right? Like this really does feel like an occult movie, not a vampire movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, so much so that when they recut it and we have to talk about the TV version at some point because it's nuts. I don't know if you've ever like watched any of it. I've never um, seen it. It is so effing crazy, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> what they did to it. Um, I mean, the, basically they cut it down. They call it Kiss of Evil. Um, and then they. They cut out everything having to do with vampires. So if you watch it, you don't know it's a vampire movie. Literally. You have, like, they cut anything having to do with vampires. Then they shot, like, almost 20 minutes of additional footage and added in an entire subplot about, like, this family that lives in the town that makes the robes for the cult. Like the woman that makes the, I know, right? Like that's the whole plot. And their daughter is in like dating Dr. Or, uh, yeah, Ravna, but they never share a scene together because like she wasn't in the actual movie and all this stuff was shot by Universal. So Hammer had nothing to do with it. And they literally like insert scenes of these characters into like other scenes. So you'll think they're there, but it's like totally different lighting schemes and stuff. And it's like this incredibly weird misogynistic plotline where like the whole time the dad's like, you need to not make robes for them and listen to me. I'm the father. I'm the man of the house and I'm right. And you can't date him. And they're like, no, we, you know, we, we can make our own decisions as women. And then in the end they're proven wrong. And like the moral of the whole plot is like, see, you should have listened to the man. Like it's <sighs> oh, so God. bad. It's so bad. And just boring and weird and strange. And it dominates the whole movie. Um, yeah, man. The the Kiss of Evil TV cut is something to, to see. It is something to behold. 
Uh, on the Blu-ray, they actually have a feature where you can just watch the additional footage separated out from the movie if you're just like morbidly curious, but you don't want to watch like a whole hour and a half of it. Um, it is definitely like worth looking at, if not to just see like the bastardization of you know something much better. I uh, I wonder if you could go further. You know, if the TV cut removed you know any element of vampirism i wonder if there's another way to cut this movie where not only you remove the vampirism but you kind of cut all the cult stuff out and then it merely becomes a story about a newly married couple and their marital problems sure and sort of the 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 threat that is introduced you know or or in a way just the lady vanishes (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) at a certain point you know, I'm wondering, it's funny, uh, about 45 minutes in when the big, uh, you know, the big reveal happens, uh, when, you know, his wife is taken from him and he decides that, uh, or he finds rather that everyone is lying to him and saying, well, you never came here with anybody. Who are you talking about? Your wife never existed. Did you not immediately flash to the Kurt Russell mid nineties movie breakdown? Like the guys who made Breakdown, oh, yeah. Had to I mean Breakdown, Empire, Breakdown, right? and then apparently uh, there's a Terrence Fisher movie, like uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the title, like A Day at the Fair or something along those lines. Um, so long at the fair, uh, from like 1950. That is also that basically. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the lady vanishes is like where that plot line sort of derives from, which I think is. They're based on a book, maybe? I can't remember. But um, a lot of movies have adopted that uh, in, in various ways. And it, it always works. I mean, it's a good, it's a cool little, like, thrillery thing to do. Um, but yes, Breakdown, well, Breakdown is one of my favorite 90s thrillers. Oh, it's amazing. Period. And maybe, you know, that's that's my favorite of the bunch. So anytime that happens in another movie, I can't help but see J.T. Walsh. You know, like his <laughs> his trucker character you know, looking down at Edward D'Souza here, just saying, like, your wife never existed, you know. Mm-hmm. I love it. No, but even more than that, you know, I was half joking, but half not. Um, you know, there there is kind of a reading of this movie, you know, that I... Is it not about, like, you know, a, a newly married couple, you know, having the, uh, the, the the bonds of their marriage tested by outside forces, you know? Um, yeah. There's some really um, borderline icky stuff that happens later where you have to question whether or not, you know, whether choice is involved or not. You know, if we if we take the vampire sort of subplot at face value, then, you know, there there is no consent. But, you know looking beyond those trappings and, you know, what it can mean for the rest of the movie, then I wonder if it's merely a matter of this young bride being presented with a far more interesting suitor, you know, um, than the guy she just got betrothed to. So, well, and I think, I think there is an aggressive horniness to Edward D'Souza's character (laughs) uh, with him early in the film that she seems a lot less, uh, uh, not willing, but like, she's not reciprocating his enthusiasm and, you know, in the same way that he's shoveling it out. Um, Obviously she loves, I think she loves him and everything, but I I do think there's a level of like the repression that's built into societal norms and they're newlywed. So presumably now they're able to sort of like 
have sex and have that part of their relationship that might've been buried previously, just based on the time that they're living. Um, and when that happens, you know, his, he's sort of pent up and yeah, like suddenly she has maybe a better option and he's threatened by that. And his masculinity is challenged because he's also not like, he's not like an intimidating presence. You know, Edward D'Souza is a very sort of slight gentleman, He's not somebody that make is he's not imposing in any way, you know. He he doesn't he doesn't have that kind of presence, um, whereas Ravna does. Um, so by and, the end, do you think that he? You know what's weird is is that the movie kind of sets him up in the final act then to need to prove his manhood and you know win back his wife, but that's not really. No, it's not really yeah, where the I, movie takes him, you know. It, it doesn't no. become straw dogs, you know. But I, I don't think, and again, I think that's why it's. It, I think this movie and Sharp particularly was interested in ambiguity and gray area. Like, I don't think he wanted it to be one specific thing. He, I think he wanted to challenge a lot of the ideas of masculinity, repression, sexuality, um, but not really focus on any one of them in the way that Fisher probably would, you know, Fisher picks a conceit and sees it end to end to fruition in a very bookended classical way. Whereas this movie is a little bit more messy with its morality um, and where it all goes. Um, And I think that makes it more effective in, in certain ways. I mean, again, my favorite Hammer films are Fisher films. Um, but that's not to take away from what I think Sharp accomplishes here. And I think it's because of this movie that Hammer was able to adapt to sort of the storytelling style it needed to. Like, I, I don't think you get Devil Rides Out without this movie. No. And, and that's a, you know, and that's a Fisher film, you know, but I don't think you get there. And not just because of what Hammer was seeing as successful, but because of what the BBC was willing to, BBFC was willing to accept. Like this movie got through a bunch of stuff that was then okay, that they could then parlance into other things. And what, like a year later, they acquired uh, Dennis Wheatley's stuff? You know, I don't don't think that's a, I think they were already thinking about it, but I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I'm sorry, but we just missed. Uh, and and I love everything you were saying, but I just wanted to point out that we missed a great deal of eye fuckery there. Uh, I mean we that yeah, that was a look of lust. That we had. also have another great side character peeking in the room. A lot of sexuality in Ravna's joint. <laughs> Ted Cruz's Twitter account would have liked this scene. Oh yeah. Oh he man, and we should talk about. James Bernard's score here because of this. Um, I love this scene. I love um, sort of it, who's the actress? Um, Isabel Black. Is that that's who plays uh, Tanya, right? Uh, Tanya, yeah. Um, I really love. There's not many scenes in Hammer where a character is just completely sort of mesmerized and overcome silently. Like 
by way of the music and the mood and the tone. Um, and when she sort of like sits down to listen to him play the piano and you get to hear, uh, you know, the beautiful sort of score and soliloquy that um, James Bernard composed for this scene, it's just really captivating and really believable that she would become hypnotized by it, you know, and not just because of the vampiric powers or whatever you want to say. I really think it's, it's the mood of the music, the, the handsome person playing it, the, the setting, the scene, it's just very well done and, and different than anything else that you had seen. I re- this and is that's really kind of creepy. what the rest of the movie is doing too. Like it's presenting yeah. the familiar, but in an entirely new way, much like, you know, Ravna's introduction, like he's standing at the top of the staircase to greet his visitors. I mean, mm-hmm. audiences had to have been reminded of Christopher Lee in the horror of Dracula, you know, just a couple of years yeah. before. And yet, you know, the way the scene pl- plays out, it's entirely different. You know, it gives us a, I, I hate to say this, but you know, in, there's a reading on Noel Willman as Ravna where he's almost at times like, uh, you know, I, I think the movie kind of wants him to be, uh, you know, diet Christopher Lee. Um, But he's doing like, you know, you watch that performance closely and you realize that he's doing something entirely different. He's playing, you know, the character's charming, but kind of snake-like. He's not doing what Lee did with his count. And I I, I think a big part of the reason the movie works is due to his performance. Here we got uh, Zimmer getting bitten. And I I loved her coaxing the body out of the the ground. You know that's a very that kind of derives from brides. I mean, much of this script derives from an original bride script, and then um, you know some abandoned disciple of Dracula scripts that have been written. This movie's really a hodgepodge of like unused ideas um, from some things that hammer had proposed previously, which was became a very common hammer thing in the late sixties. <laughs> like <laughs> to just like pull out all the drafts, like of other, you know, unused things, but it always sort of worked for them. I mean, they had a lot of great ideas and they were really smart not to just throw them away. Yeah. And you know, the, there is the a, set, uh, there's kind of a Lee quality to Wilman. There's also kind of a Peter Cushing quality. I swear there is, you know, if Lee and Cushing had a child, I think this guy wouldn't be too far. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, that's I, phenomenal. I, yeah. Well, he was like a like a stage actor, right? Like, sort of a classically trained, more Shakespearean kind of guy. Um, I think he brings a lot of like, I don't know, very. Like a believable aristocratic sort of sensibility to the role um, where he just he feels like somebody that you would meet and immediately feel like respect for Um, and that he'd be the guy in charge, you know, and and that you trust him and that you're sort of warm to him. But you also like are intimidated by him and it comes very naturally. It doesn't feel forced at all. No, you can totally see him as a cult leader. Like the, you can oh, yeah. see why people yeah. would fall under his sway. Uh, it is strange, I think, that 
you know, he didn't have a huge career with Hammer after this, and maybe that was his choice. But you know, he did. Um, well, uh, she and she, yeah, um, I think uh, da, 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 um, the reptile. Uh, well, he was this. brought in by Sharp, right? Like that was a Don Sharp call. I'm not sure that he, you know, Hammer was a big like familial relationship based studio and. I don't know that he had a close relationship with many of the regulars there other than Sharp. Um, so I think that might have been part of it. But yeah, this is the scene I was referring to earlier with the uh, piano music and just sort of her becoming hypnotized, mesmerized. And then she has a green drink, which is evocative of like absinthe, which was often like um associated with death um and was and and all and like young women were warned not to drink green drinks so i, I gotta believe that that was a purposeful thing Have and you then here we get zip i haven't either nor I, shall I, I. <laughs> I well i mean you can try it now uh it's funny my local abc the last time i was there in person which would have been nine months ago now, something like that. Uh, I got to do a lot of curbside for my liquor these days, Paul, but, um, they, they do have like an absinthe kit with the big silver spoon and the, uh, the, the sugar chunks and everything. But here's the thing. It's apparently the taste from, I've never tried it, but reading about it, they nailed the taste, but it doesn't actually have wormwood in it, which means that, one, if you want to try it, you know, you're you're not getting the authentic thing, which is a bummer, but then again, you're they not actually, gonna die. So. They actually burned a dude's hand for this. One of the I forget what? who it was, but yeah. Yeah. They just covered it in like some sort of jelly and lit it on fire because they didn't have a good prosthetic, so the guy was willing he's like, just burn my hand. You, not uh, that actor, but a production person. You mean it wasn't CG? It was not CG. No, and it wasn't a false hand. It was a real dude's hand that they just lit on fire. Um, th- also, it's worth noting that that's uh, similar. Like, the second time in a Hammer Vampire movie where a character has to sort of purify themselves after being bit. Yeah, here's the thing. Does he really... I mean, you know, with uh, with Cushing at the end of uh, The Brides of Dracula, that feels like a process that was necessary where... You know, he seals the wounds, and then he uses a cross, and then he uses the holy water to wash it. You know, it it feels very necessary, whereas here, he's just kind of like, oh, just need to cauterize the fucking thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I do see it as purifying, though. Like, it, I, I don't think it was simply, oh, I'm cut, I need to, to do that. I mean, I, I think the fact that it was, I, I don't know, I, the fact that he actually burned his hand that way, I, it just felt like this is a purifying thing but he There's also no... took a swig first well, like true. i mean i i think he's i think that's the drunk you know angry version of Hels- van helsing <laughs> i i really think that's almost like the point of that scene is to sort of tie him to sort of the van helsing character but show that he's 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 a gruffer angrier version of that paul i yeah. gotta ask you what buddy comedy might have resulted if Helsing <laughs> and Zimmer had paired up. Could you imagine? Uh, the the greatest buddy comedy? I mean, I would I would watch like a Planes, Trains, and Automobiles <laughs> with those two. 
Which one is candy? But it, it would have to have been like carriages, boats. Yeah. <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. That would actually be really, really great. Now, hey, um, I know you're a fan of uh, The Curse of the Werewolf for some reason. What? Because it's great. Do you, do you draw any sort of like parallel or do you just find it even remotely interesting that one of the characters in this film is named Sabina? Um, Given I mean, the origin I, of The Curse of the Werewolf. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I mean, it's, it's possible that that character was uh, drawn from that other script because, again this was a movie that was very much written to combine ideas, unused ideas that they wish they had used. Um, I don't know that it's, I mean, the, that, that script, I feel like it's available. If you go, I think you have to get it like, cause there's like archives and stuff where you can read a lot of these things. Um, but I don't I don't know that I think it's anything other than like the name. I don't know that it really draws thematics from the rape of Sabina. You know what I mean? Like I don't I don't know that because that was a very different thing than this. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I wonder if it was just merely like a nod, you know, like maybe. Or maybe yeah. it was just a maybe it was just a common name. Maybe there's nothing there. I, I do think maybe that, I've uh, had too much this... to drink. Who can say? <laughs> Nah, not yet. I do think this is a great example. This movie particularly is a great example of Bernard Robinson's set design. Um, This movie just looks gorgeous and different. Uh, Again, you know, Bray Studios looks like a completely different place once more inside of Ravna's home. You know, it's funny. We were talking about the Cronenbergs earlier. You know, Ravna sounds like a Cronenberg antagonist's name. I can see a Dr. Ravna, you know, bouncing oh, yeah. in some sort of... Ravna's a great name. It, it is. It's a really, really solid villain name. <laughs> Dracula, Meinster, Ravna. Ravna, you know, yeah. I like Ravna kind of, I hate to say it, Ravna kind of feels like it could kick the other two names' asses. Yeah, I mean, Dracula holds with it a certain weight. You know, I mean, it's hard, but I mean, that's part of just the world we live in. I, and I like, we haven't really talked about the innkeepers they're staying with um, and their dynamic. Uh, And I really, I mean, Vera Cook really steals the show in this movie as his, uh, his sort of um, grieving wife. Uh, And we get that moment, which I think, think is coming up soon where she sort of walks in on her oh no right now wow okay perfect where they hear her crying um and this is this is really different for hammer um where you know a lot of these movies you know people die and of course people are sad about it but like you actually, they peek in on a grieving mother. And that that is probably one of the most serious, emotionally powerful moments, like, in a Hammer movie up until this point. Yeah. And it is one hell of an introduction. It is curious how different those two are from, 
you know, any other inns keeper that we've seen, you know, uh, they're, they're not overtly villainous or creepy, but they're not also fearful and just, you know, crazy Ralph from Friday the 13th, you know, they're, they feel like real people in a weird way, like living, breathing human beings who have backstories and might, you know, command enough interest to, you know, have their own stories told in the film. You know, one could imagine a, a, a variation on this tale that's sold entirely from their point of view. Yeah, and, and there's a there's also a cost to the vampire story. You know, like like a real uh, there's real stakes. <laughs> wow, pun not intended, but I'll take it. Holy shit, Paul! Um, Holy shit. I know that was good, but I he I do is a I do think it's an water. important scene. Sorry. He is good. Yeah, I mean, look at, look at him. And she's looking him up and down. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm into this. Yeah, but I, I think you're right, too. There's something almost... There's something almost chaste between the two. Yeah. You know, there isn't a whole lot of heat there. There is less heat than them... Uh, you know, here they are, like, embracing and kissing. They're, but they're trying too hard. And, and there's yeah. not a lot of natural chemistry. And I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but I do think, you know, again, the times were different. I mean, it's very conceivable that they had not been together intimately before being married. That That's a conceivable thing, you know, that, that they had not done that. And now they're on their vacation and they're supposed to do that. That's the next thing. And they're trying to sort of warm up to that because they know that's what they're supposed to do. Obviously, he wants to because... <laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of the, the masculine thing. And she's, I think she wants to want him. If that makes sense. No, um, I, where, I, whereas, Oh, go ahead. No, I think you're right. I, I think she does, but it feels like, you know, when she's with him, she's kind of going through the motions. Whereas, you know, two seconds spent in Robna's presence, you know, and him kissing her hand, you could tell like, that awakens something entirely different in her that she's not familiar with, with her yes. husband. Yeah. And it's, it's called passion. <laughs> and... <laughs> Is that what it was? I, I was wondering. And, and I think she feels the same way when she's looking at his son, you know, playing the piano. She's like, Ooh, I'm, I'm into this and I'm into him. Uh, and, and it all comes to a head at the masquerade ball. You know, that's, that's where things really sort of kick into high gear. But, um, I, I do think the movie does a really good job of building that up ahead of time. Um, and then by putting them in such a weird situation, this strange town where people are acting strangely and there's not a lot of outsiders, which is a really common hammer thing. You know, there's not a lot of extra people um, for monetary purposes as well as story purposes. Um, but I, you know, I, I really do, believe that 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 sort of marital struggle is purposefully there in the narrative well at times it feels like that's all the movie is about you know even for all of its supernatural trappings like it really is just about this married couple weathering their first storm in a way yeah and um yeah that's true i think it's kind of funny that sharp you know we talked about sharp having never directed a horror thing before well apparently he didn't even watch horror movies so like his his concern he was brought on because um christopher lee knew him 
and Lee was like, this guy's a really good director. You should hire him. So they hired him. You know, they're like, oh, word from Lee, you know, you're in. And Sharp was like, well, my only concern is I don't know horror. So they basically gave him, uh, they let him uh, screen all of what they called their golden movies, like their golden age greats. So they screened him like five or six of their best movies. So like Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, Bride, you know, Brides of Dracula, um, you know, they just get the mummy. They screened all of their like, you know, what they figured their greats were. And then he took those and he was like, OK, I like some of what they were doing. I think there's opportunities to do something, you know, a little different. And that's how he crafted his film. And I think that's kind of funny. No, no, I think that's great. I, you know, it's funny. He didn't have a sort of lengthy relationship with Hammer. Not really. Uh, no. At least a prolific one. But. Nevertheless, he did still give us quite a few great horror gems over the years. Again, I can't say enough about Curse of uh, the Curse of the Fly. You know, it's such a weird, weird fucking I entry in that have, series, but okay, it's wonderful. So I have Psychomania too. I I <gasps> bought that freaking Paul. box. I have the box set. I bought the, the Screen Factory thing, and I haven't watched it yet. Paul, I, I gotta watch it. I know, I know, I know. I've said it's the only Fly movie I haven't seen is Curse of the Fly. I've seen all the other ones. I have such an appreciation for that franchise after, because I hate to say this, up until that box set, I had only seen the original film, the Cronenberg remake, and the sequel to the Cronenberg remake, which is deeply underrated. After watching the box yeah. set, I just started at the first film and worked my way through. There isn't a bad film in that series. No, in they're fact, all good. They're yeah. all I mean, gems. But I like all, I like the four I've seen. Which is, you know, the other ones. Yeah, they're all really fun in their own ways. I mean, it's and even I would even call Cronenberg's fun in its own way. I mean, it's dark and it's fucked up, but it's it's a fun movie. Like it's 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 a creature feature. Well, it's I mean, it's um, the masterpiece out of the group. It's the one that sort of stands yeah. head and shoulders above the others. But you know, if you take the other ones on the terms of just being, including the the sequel to his remake, it's just being. Oh, I like that one too. Yeah, I I don't get why people shit on that movie. It's super fun. Like, I mean, that one's the definition of a fun '80s effects film. And one of the best. It's just a good time. Yeah, it's a really good time. I think it's. I'm surprised. I was kind of thinking that when the uh, box set came out, like it would get its sort of revisionist history. Where people would be like, oh, this was good all along. I've always been a fan of this one. This is, you know, like the Halloween 3. Creep Show 2 is actually a great movie. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, what it Jinx. It, oh, it my God. Great. I'm sorry. I, you, you, so, you like Creep Show 2. I mean, but you know what I, I, mean. I get that you're calling me out, but that's fine. No, I, I um, actually. I was not calling you out. I could not. But that's it. I actually like Creep Show 2 legitimately before other people liked it. All I'm saying is I know exactly (laughs) what you're talking about. Inevitably, You're right, though. You are right. Arrow put it out, and everyone said it was good. You're right. right. When our favorite boutique labels trot out a a forgotten title, inevitably, or maybe an underrated or under... In a nice edition, you know, like a big box set. Like, it'll, it'll suddenly become popular, at least briefly. Then it's Halloween um, three all of a sudden. Yes, and Halloween three is yeah rushing to say how much they always loved it, and I feel like Creep yeah. Show. I've always my mind always goes to Creep Show two for whatever That's reason fair. because it's fair. I I I and I'm that person like I do defend Creep Show two, but I want to just say like I have 
been a fan of Creepshow 2 since I originally <laughs> saw it. I'm not, like, a poser. I'm not a Creepshow 2 poser, even though it probably seems that way. Although I have to say, the first time I saw it wasn't probably that long ago in the great scheme of things, because I came to horror so late, so... Um, anyway, I just, you know, I was thankful that, and here's the thing, I will never bash Wes Craven because I, I think he was brilliant, but I am glad that there was some sort of like unspoken line in the sand that was drawn with the Hills Have Eyes part two, you know, uh, Arrow put out that big, you know, hard I shell box set. Of course it. you did. Every, we all did, Paul. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that <laughs> nobody rushed to that movie's defense. Nobody was out there saying, well, you know what? Halloween 3, blah, 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 blah. You know, it. Every, we, we all just kind of keep quiet about that movie. We're completists. We own it. It's on our shelves. But we're not going to say it's actually well, a good the movie. The funny thing... And that's true. And the funny thing about Hills Have Eyes Part 2 is I had, so I had never seen it, right? I had never watched it. And that set came out and I was like, you know what? Like, yeah, I'm a completist. It's Craven. I'll buy it and this will be my chance to watch it. And if, and maybe, maybe I'll find something <laughs> in it to like, right? Like, you know, like I'm going to go in with an open mind. Like I have nothing to lose here. Was it the dog flashback? Movie. Was that what did it for uh, you? Oh my God. I watched that movie and I was just like, Dear Lord, there is nothing redeemable in the runtime of this film. It is so bad. And you know what's crazy um, is that he it's made so that, bad. He made that after a Nightmare on Elm Street. That's what well, it, it was. was a wasn't it like movie. a tax? Yeah, it was like he needed. Yeah, it was a money thing. He needed the money. I totally get it. I don't fault the guy at all. No, I mean, if I not. was Wes Craven and I had the opportunity to get a nice big paycheck to do it, I'd probably do it too. Um. And, and and frankly, his filmography, I mean, he made so many movies and so many good, fun movies. Um, that, you know, anyway, I love Craven. Craven's very special to me. Um, 90% of his films, I adore. So, same, you know, same. I, I think, I think the only person with a better track record is like, I mean, Carpenter's kind of, to me, the guy with like out of all the masters, he's the one with the track record to beat. I don't oh, the know. golden That's run. I, like, yeah, I mean like, dear God, almost every single Carpenter film is a fucking like classic. You know, you can't really say that like as much as I love Craven, as much as I love Hooper, they, they're, they just, they're not the same caliber as what, what Carpenter was putting out. Now at the same time, the flavors are different. You know, what Hooper gives me is different than what Carpenter gives me. And sometimes I want that. You know, I, so. I, I agree with you in that. Okay, so, yeah, but it... Uh, fuck, I'm, 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 I'm well on my way to being drunk, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this properly. But or you're right. Okay, so on just a level of skill, nobody tops Carpenter and that run in the late seventies throughout the eighties, because Holy shit, that collection of movies pretty, is pretty damn much everything he made between, um, fucking, um, Oh God. Assault on precinct 13 up through what in the mouth of madness. I mean, well, uh, yeah, to me, yes, but you I would know, say you have some people is, who is, would say that he starts un, becoming nearly untouchable. This. I I I just don't agree with that. I I, I, don't, I think I don't that everything. Well, but, but 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 I will say one thing. 
and I, I enjoy the movie, but it is not on par with every, okay. So let's go, let's, let's, let's run through, uh, the Carpenter filmography. Forgetting Dark Star. You ready? Paul, we, we've reached this like point the in right the commentary. We, we, in the we, we've given, we, have we not given I, the listeners more commentary than they're used to from us I, by this point? I think this I, is the I point like when we, we I feel like we did a good job so we far. Did. We did. I think I, and I brought, I mean, I, I, I researched this movie because I did an article on it. So I kind of know a little bit about it. Um, more than usual. So I hope that I brought some real, like, interesting content. Oh, can we just talk before we do this? This, this isn't the end of the, the commentary. I was just saying we're going to duress a little bit. You're, no, no, but you're, you're like bidding, with the masquerade. You're bidding we're the, the movie masquerade. a fond farewell already. I, no, I, 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 well, we're about to go into a play-by-play of John Carpenter's filmography. You know, I don't even. We're just going like to take half an hour it's at least. Hour. It's already okay. done. No, no, care. but we got it. We have to comment on the masquerade ball. I'm just going to sit here. and We have to. This is one of the okay. So first off, this is not before... unlike. It's funny that you mentioned the movie earlier. This reminds me of Prospero's Ball from The Mask of the Red Death in so many ways. If there were yeah. colored rooms in this sequence, I would feel like it was almost a direct lift. But at the same time, I look at this and I think that somewhere in the background, Tom Cruise is bopping around with a Venetian mask and an erection. Well. uh, it's been noted that Kubrick actually cited this as a reference. No. And, yeah. And, and, uh, uh, Roman Polanski loved this scene. This was a scene that actually one of the inspirations for the fearless vampire killers or pardon me, your teeth are in my neck. A lot of, a lot of um, young women here. That's and right. yeah. And, uh, I love the masks. Uh, all of these masks were created by Roy Ashton who did all the effects work on a lot of hammer movies. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, and I actually think, um, I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I think this is some of the best stuff he ever did. I think these masks are great. They're creepy. They're weird. They're evocative. Um, and Why this... hasn't Trick or Treat Studios replicated these for sale? Well, because the movie Kiss of the Vampire doesn't draw as much attention as, let's say, like Friday the 13th. And do you know uh, why, Paul? Do you know why? Because nobody knows this what the hell... podcast hasn't come out yet. When nobody this knows what the hell it is because the key art makes it look like a movie from the 80s. What is the deal with that lame-ass white background with the face coming out of it? It's stupid. Like, it, it deserves better, damn it. This is... I love this movie. Like, I love it. It is one of my favorite Hammer movies. Um, And, okay, this scene where it just pans across the faces, this is very very eyes wide shut. Um, And then also, it tells you, like, without words, without dialogue, it tells you there's a cult. It tells you these are the members. There's malicious intent. Like, everything you need to know is is there in the scene visually and again that was not something hammer did hammer was was all about exposition (laughs) hammer was nothing but people in smoking jackets walking around sipping a glass of scotch and telling you what the story was about um now granted they did that in really interesting ways i'm not shitting on hammer movies but this movie sort of challenged that way of storytelling and this scene does it in a more interesting way than most other scenes of the film no i agree and i you know i i think that's all due credit to uh 
Well, obviously it had to be there in the script, surely, but the way that Sharp presents the scene, you know, it's, you're right. It's doing all of those things, but it also allows there to be a real energy there. And I love this switch. I love that the moment he opens that case and you see the mask, you know exactly what's going to happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's wonderful. Um, and the colors, like the reds really pop, um, you know, the, the way the masks are used, the way it kind of creates a tone and a mood and the costuming, it can't be the light. any like sort got, of got weird sort of like purpley. You've got the lantern. So there's sort of a, a diegetic reason for it to be there. But again, you have sort of a slightly experimental visual landscape. Um, you know, Don Sharp doesn't play with depth of field as much as uh, Terrence Fisher does. But in this sequence, you know, there's there's a bit of of that going on. Well, Marion too, like there, there is, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the red, like, I think it's worth noting, like, it's no mistake that up until this point in the movie, she has worn somewhat muted collars. Right now, you know, for the mask, she's wearing like, you know, bright, passionate red. Yep. Yep. She's allowed herself to become a sexual target, which again, that, that sounds like a misogynistic take, but I think that's. That's but the in, broad the broad strokes with which the story is painting her. Yeah. Um, and because now she's falling victim to, you know, the predator that that's that's been attracted to the color, you know. Um it, it's yeah, it's a really powerful sequence that to me ties the whole movie together. I think this sequence kind of makes the movie and it, it ties the first half to the second half. And what is coming up is such a it's such a delicate balance between story and theme, you know, what is about to happen to her that mm-hmm. I honestly think, you know, between direction and performance, it would have been so easy to misstep and ruin everything. Yeah. But instead, so the way that it's played is so uh, 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 subtle where, you know, it doesn't violate the story or the theme. I don't think when it comes to her character, uh, you can't say that, you know, one way or another, that exactly what happens there. You know, if we do again, you know, if we take the, uh, the idea that this is a vampire story, this is a cult story. If we take all of that at face value, then she is somebody who has fallen under the sway of, you know, evil people, in which case what happens to her is tragic. And yet at the same time, you know, given everything that's happened up until this moment, you know, and it feels weird to even say, but I mean, it is playing out on screen before us. So I, you know, this isn't me. I'm merely describing what I'm seeing in this movie. She finds herself in a position that she has to some extent invited herself into, you know what I mean? Um, which is deeply uncomfortable, but it's also kind of what makes the movie fascinating to me. Well, and, and to me, this is very much a sexual encounter. You know, this is, this is her, this isn't just getting bit by a vampire. This is, no. this is more than that. And, um, if they didn't have the close up of the fangs, then, yeah, which I don't love the fangs in this movie. I will no, say I that's probably it. the thing I like the least, um, in terms of like, change but this is kind of 
this is one of the things that censors like had a lot of issues with. Um, and I think originally there was, there might've been more suggestion around the sexual nature of their encounter. How much Um, more could there be? I think there was a bit more, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. Um, I know there was some scripted stuff. Yeah. I really don't like those. I just, no, they look terrible, but you know, I, I, it would have been enough had she simply sort of bared her neck, but that's not what she does. She goes no. to his bed and she lies down and, yeah. you know, so again, if you didn't have that shot with the fangs and you merely had him going to her side, then what are we meant to think happened there? Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, 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 I I think the 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 gentleman in a Clockwork Orange would call it rumpy pumpy. I don't know, you know. Wow. Um, I like that you kept it classy. That's what I appreciate about <laughs> you on this podcast. <laughs> you keep it classy, and you know I can't fault you for that. What What is classier than Kubrick, sir? Very little. We could talk about Barry Lyndon. <laughs> That's pretty classy. No, we can't. No. Oh my God! Lord, I think Lord you just Lord. told me. You just told me in a sarcastic way that you find me to be a complete bore. And I can't argue. I did not. Oh, wait. Yeah, I guess I did. Wow. Here we go. That hurts. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't I'm think being, you... I'm being saucy because I've had a few beers at this point. I think, I think deep down you think I am. I do, I do like that he it's a character sort of like suggested that this she was really trying me. to take advantage of him. You know, I do. He was kind of into it. <laughs> I think it's, he was into it. But well, yeah, that's the thing too. Is you know, we're talking about the woman the entire time, and yet at the same time, you know, he is, you know, this husband is somebody who is obviously allowing himself to prowl around a bit too. Um, he's so, he's again, he's aggressively horny, um, and she isn't. Like he's he's seeking it out. She's trying to appeal to her husband and also society. Um, and then she's the one who's sort of seen as, you know, Oh, you're putting yourself out there for this. So I think it's also a bit of a commentary on the unfair position. Uh, you know, women are often placed in um, and that they are objects of desire to these men. And, you know, as opposed to individuals, that have their own agency. So I think, I, I think sharp was playing with that sense of agency more than a lot of the other, especially the vampire movies that hammer had done up until this point, which, I mean, there were only two, right? It was just Dracula and brides. Okay. And then this pretty much solidifies what we already knew. The fact yeah. that she was naked. I'm sorry, Paul. What does that mean? Uh, that they, uh, what was the word you used? What was the cubic word? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. What. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen Clockwork Orange. It's not, it's not a cubic movie I revisit quite a bit because it's a little bit of a disturbing watch. A little bit? It's a lot of bit. It's a lot of bit. A lot of bit. No, I do uh, what's your wonder, favorite Kubrick film? My favorite Kubrick film is easily The Shining. Okay. As much as I love a lot of his work, really? it's got to be The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> The Shining. I love The Shining. I don't know that it's my favorite, to be honest. I'd have to really ruminate on that. Um, weirdly, I'm a big fan. I love The Killing. The uh, Killing is great. I like, I like Lolita a lot, weirdly. I just, I like that movie. I, it's a oh, scrappy, it's... 
movie. Fantastic. The performances and, alone. Yes. Um, and it's just weird, but in a, in a subversive way. Uh, anyway. Um, so there's lots of, I'm, I'm a Kubrick fan. In general, Damn it, so. man. Now you have me wondering if I am a bore. I hope I'm what, not. What are but... you talking about? I was, it was a joke. I if know, but no, 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 no. But, but, but it does raise a question that I've wrestled with silently on this podcast, which is, uh, you know, whenever I turn the mic on, I do try to project a version of myself. Okay. I try to be more interesting than I think I actually, what's weird is, You're... is that, no, 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 no. Like I, I, what's <laughs> funny is that, and I, I think you could probably tell me if you think I'm wrong about this. You and I had a 20 minute conversation before we actually started recording. But yeah. was there not a noticeable difference between the guy you were talking to for the first 20 minutes and then the guy who launched into the introduction to the show? See, like I part of me wonders how much difference there is between like the Scream Addicts character that I play and who I actually am, but also how much the alcohol plays into that. Like, I don't well, really yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, we're What's... drinking. I, I, I think it's more. Um, I, well, I mean, okay, when you're on a podcast, right, and you know that this is being broadcasted out to people to listen to, like, there is a sense of what you, you want to say things that are entertaining or interesting, right? I mean, which you should want to say. Granted, the best podcasters that I listen to, or my, I guess what I should say are my favorites, I end up liking those people, and I just kind of want to hear them talk, because it feels like you're hanging out, right? And I think that's the whole point of, like, the Hammer Pub, right? Is it just kind of, like, people are just hanging out with us while we talk about movies, using whatever Hammer movie we're watching as, like, a, a jumping-off point. Um, at the same time, I'm not going to, like arbitrarily just shoot the shit about nothing you know seinfeld-esque nothing things because i know that no one would want to listen to that <laughs> you know what i mean like the 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 random like catching up on life type stuff like i probably wouldn't talk about on a podcast um but i don't think that means that like there's a there's less authenticity to what it is that i'm presenting it's just a more catered um, approach to conversation. I get that. I get that in a way. I guess I just, you know, it's weird. I, I don't think I would have even considered it had it not been for the fact that we had an episode of the normal version of the podcast dropped in between episodes of Hammer Pub where uh, I, uh, I spoke with Andrew Merrill, whose new film Rot was out, and he talked about The Brood. And it occurred to me, like, going from Hammer Pub to that and back to Hammer Pub, I was like, just not even recording them, but just listening to them. I was like, oh, I'm the, the guy that I am when I chat with other people for the first time is weirdly kind of who I actually am. Mm -hmm. And the guy that I am on Hammer Pub is more like a projection of me that the alcohol allows where I try and be a little more loud, a little more crass, a little more funny than I think I probably am in real life, if that makes any sense. So, but, but part of me started to worry. I was like, no, what if, okay, because this is a more conversational version of the podcast, I yeah. wonder if people listen to this and think like, oh, well, clearly this is the actual him as opposed to, 
you know, the the normal show. So that, I don't know, it it bugged me in a weird way, or it has bugged me for a couple of weeks wondering, like, and because we get so little in the way of feedback from listeners, like, it's it's beyond me what people think of the show. I know we have plenty of (laughs) listeners. I just have no idea what the hell any of them think. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Mean, I've been, I've been worried about that recently. I'm just kind of like, I well, wonder how I'm coming let's, off. Like, let's put a call out to the listeners. Listeners make Jinx realize that he's, he's pretty great and he's super fun on this podcast. I don't know. I have a good time. Not about, I, this is not about insecurity more than it is curiosity, but I, I think that, um, I, I don't know. I, I having this, I mean, I listened to you for a long time before I ever started talking to you. Um, and I think that a lot of who you are comes through on the podcast either way. Um, I think on hammer pub, yeah, we're drinking, so we're going to be more exaggerated versions of ourselves. Like, I think that I'm really different here than I am on like dead ringers. You know what I mean? Like, I I think I'm a very different person (laughs) on hammer pub than I am on dead ringers. I'm more. I don't know. I mean, I'm not like a particularly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, I'm outspoken. I, I, I think here I get a little bit more, like a little louder. I get a little bit more like into what I'm talking about. Um, I'm willing to go off the rails more. I'm a little more sarcastic here. Um, but that's, I think part of our dynamic, <laughs> I don't know. I think that makes it fun. Hopefully this is fun to listen to. I, I enjoy recording it. That's the the main thing. But who knows? You know, I mean, at the end of the day, a podcast is a free thing that we put out into the world. And <laughs> if people like it, that's awesome. And if they don't, they don't have to listen to it. <laughs> I think it's fair. But I, I, I think we've done good work on the Hammer Pub. I'm, well, I'm going to go ahead and pat ourselves on the back everyone when when everyone listens to a podcast they want to hear the podcasters say that they think they're doing a good job that's what's important yeah that's true i i when you know when you put out like a couple of hundred of episodes of something like you you kind of do just want to hear something i would even be happy with negative feedback just feedback you know we've gotten some feedback people have said good things there's been some things I would be Sorry. happy. It's probably Jinx is probably my fault, to be honest. If anybody's no. at fault, no, me. no, fault, because fault. you're the one with like the the established podcast. I'm just some guy who jumped on it. I Paul, mean, this established podcast uh, got about the same amount of feedback uh, before. So, uh, and and the <laughs> amount of feedback, the amount of feedback that we got before was mostly from you. So. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I did give but, a lot of feedback, <laughs> but part of me does. But again, like part of me does. And I'm not saying like, look, I, I, we were laughing before. Like, it's it's not like I, I wasn't personally insulted. But my point being is that that reminded me that I do occasionally worry about like what listeners must think of me. It's just like, oh, did I go too far? If I went too far, do people just think that that's all I am or what I am? You know, it's like, okay, yeah, I do say boorish things to hopefully get a laugh, but at the same time, like, I hope that people know that that's kind of the spirit in which it was said, you know, as opposed to being a natural extension of who I am. I I think that's how people interpret it. Um, 
And now we're into the Lady Vanishes portion of this movie. I'm still going with Breakdown, but you do you. Okay, well... I gotta say, you know, somebody just this evening... That's a funny thing, Paul. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and clue the uh, listeners in on something here. We are recording this on Thursday night after having not recorded for a month, but this is going up in about 12 hours. This will be the shortest turnaround we've ever had from recording to publishing the episode. And uh, the reason I mentioned that, tonight, Thursday night, somebody posted this thing, what are your top five Hitchcock movies? And Ooh, so I gave my list. Of, it, it is tough, but The Lady Vanishes was not in there. I'm going to throw no, that out. No, I mean, I wouldn't put that in there. But mine would be weird. My My top five Hitchcocks would probably not resemble most people's, I feel like. Well, I got mine right here, and if we're not doing Carpenter's filmography, we might as well do. Oh, we're gonna do Carpenter. Well, okay, we could do it. Let's do this and then Carpenter, and then we'll talk about the movie. So, right. Okay. Uh, what do you want to give your five Hitchcocks first, or right. do you want? Well, I mean, I, I would just off the cuff it. I don't even. I you know, I would just have to off the cuff it. So the evolution of horror tweeted top five Hitchcock movies go, and they capitalized the G and O, so you know they're serious, and oh, they wow. provide. They provided a picture from the birds, which is a little presumptuous. But um, anyway, my top five, Psycho, Vertigo, Rope, Rear Window, Strangers on a Train. Ooh, those are good picks. Two of them would be on my five. Only two. Two. Rope and Rear Rear Window would be on mine. Okay, uh, so uh, I said I hoped Rope was on there, but it didn't occur to me that Psycho wouldn't be. Are you kidding me? Psycho is not in your top five Hitchcocks? Probably not. No. I, but again, it doesn't mean I don't think it's perfect. I just... I, I I came to all this stuff super late. Like, you know, I watched all of Hitchcock movies, like, all in a row. You know? I mean, I guess I saw Psycho first. I like Psycho quite a bit, but it's not... No, it's not my favorite i mean i i would i would put a top five if i said what are his best movies but i feel like favorite and best are two different things like my favorite movies would be like (laughs) and that's the thing is like mine would probably piss people off because like i would pick movies that aren't as good as psycho but i like but me personally i like them more does that make sense i don't know is that crazy you're you're being quiet, which means you you don't Paul, agree. That's fine. I, no, it's you, no no no. Here's I like Psycho I res- a lot. It's just I respect, not. I like respect your my opinion. movie. Just, it's not special to me in any way. Like I, I think it's really good. It's and totally I really like it. Like, it but is. I have no like personal affinity for it. But it I is. love it. Like if if I was saying top five most like best Hitchcock movies, I'd probably say like. The obvious ones, you know, I'd say like Psycho and um, Vertigo would be on there. Vertigo is not one of my personal favorites, but it would be on the top five best ones. Um, Actually, your top five is pretty close to what I would say is like his best movies. My my personal favorite top five would be like Rope and Rear Window. Absolutely. Rear Window is my favorite of his movies. Nice. Um, then I'd go rope, and then the other three would probably be fil- Shadow of a Doubt would be one for sure. Oh, I love Shadow of a Doubt. That would be like number six for me. See, see, I'm not too crazy. Um, and then the one that everyone like would probably raise their eyebrows out is I love the trouble with Harry. 
I love that movie. No, that's, I a, think it's that's a great, great. Damn movie. It's really funny. And again, you know, I'm a horror comedy guy. So I really like that he did a small town quirky comedy that fits in the Hitchcock milieu. Um, I'd be really tempted, really tempted to put Lifeboat on my list, but it's too similar to Rope. Yeah. Um, but I love Lifeboat. I think Lifeboat is a phenomenal film. I'm a huge fan. Um, so my fifth movie, man, really put me in a box. I, I guess, I guess I probably, you know what? I'm going to take it back. I'll put Psycho on there. I'll put no, Psycho. no, don't do it if you feel No, yet. no, I mean, I, because literally thinking about it, I don't know. I don't know of a movie I think I would put on a top five other than that. Maybe Marnie. I really like Marnie. Marnie is good. Um, so like. If anything, that would be that might eke in there. Um, but I I would probably give it to Psycho because it's it's a great again, I I I think Psycho is a perfect movie. Um, but I was just more thinking like what are the movies that like if I just if I was like, oh, I'm gonna sit down and watch a Hitchcock foo movie for fun, I'd probably pop in one of those other ones, you know. Yeah, that's um, that's, that's fair. I get that. I, I, I just I, Psycho Man to me is it's not just one of Hitchcock's best. It's not just Hitchcock's best period to me, but it's like one of my favorite movies of all time. We're talking like top 10 material. No, I, 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 and I didn't, I totally understand. I mean, it's a great, again, a great movie. I, and that's the, I've, you know, when you do something like a personal favorite list, it's really tough because you're, you're having to pick, especially when you do something like Hitchcock, because Jesus, like I just said five movies, like he made a ton of amazing movies. Like you said, Strangers <laughs> on a Train is amazing. The Birds is a great movie. Um, you know, these are all movies that like in any other filmmaker's filmography, for the most part, they would be at the top. But, you know, I can only pick five. Um, and I even like some of his later films that people don't like. Um, you know, I think most everything he made has merit to it. Um, even I'm a family plan of. Huh? I, I, you know what? I, I haven't watched that one yet. I've, I've just kind of sat on that one. Um, Hitchcock's one of those guys where there's a handful of his movies that I'm sort of like saving, not saving. Yeah. Kind of saving. Like I, that way I have more Hitchcock to look forward to. Unfortunately, a lot of the ones I'm saving are like his later ones. Like I haven't seen torn curtain yet. Um, I haven't seen family plot. Uh, there was a couple other ones, but I did watch, um, what was the other one from the seventies? That's, um, yeah, I can't think of it, but, um, anyway, there's, there's a lot of great Hitchcock stuff. Man who knew too much is amazing. Um, even some of his asylum films are really good. Um, sabotage is a really good movie. That's an old film. You know, he, he, and I bought like, a ton of Hitchcock stuff that I haven't watched yet either. Like I bought that Kino Lorber box set of asylum films. Oh, yeah. um, I bought the criterion release of the lodge. Um, you know, one of his earlier silent films. So like I have a bunch of Hitchcock that I've not watched. Um, that I'm just kind of saving. Cause then I have something to look forward to, you know, no, you're... but um, now we're uh, watching Kiss of the Vampire, and uh, yeah, the cult is coming. Can I, uh, ahead. can I ask you 
whether or not you find it interesting that Ravna in some ways <sighs> represents kind of a, um, you know, I, I, I don't know how to articulate this, but he, he, he represents in some ways, does he not like a, a, a choice of sexual freedom for Marion where, so, you know, in many ways, kind of like the opposite of the repression she's probably dealt with up until this point of her life, including her marriage. But in the final act, you know, he's no longer in the white robes. He is in something that is very Puritan looking. And I'm just wondering if you, you find that remotely interesting and what it represents for you, if so. Um, I think it's that even though she was sort of maybe on some level attracted to the power and therefore the sort of sexual power that he represented, it's it's still confining. Like, this is a, just a different type of confinement. Um, preying on that desire for passion. So does that simply um, mean that she is not? Object, it's still an objectification of her. So she simply does it. Does it come down to the fact that maybe she love, just isn't the marrying type? You know that no matter who her husband is, it's always going to represent a cage I, of sorts. I think it's it's sort of a reflection on the plight of the the, the woman um, at at the time and and the. Again, the lack of agency, um, and and sometimes the the ability for you know I think the occult level of it is it's the, a true cult leader is somebody that makes the people that they're controlling feel as though they have the agency to act independently or autonomously, right? Like they they don't, but they feel like they do. That's the power of the cult leader. Um, he's, he's tricking them into thinking they're making their own decisions. Um, but, but even like, so she's offering a level of passion to him, like ripping off his shirt. That was something the censors like had a problem with. Um, and then like that is, and her scratching his chest, they didn't want to show that. Like there was a bunch of censorship issues with this. Um, but like tearing off his, his, shirt and and ripping at his chest and then like moving in like this there's a raw sexuality that she represents that he's fighting against i do love like using the blood to make a cross i think that's really fantastic kind of reminds me of cushing using the shadow as a cross oh totally yeah it's like uh, you know and from dusk till dawn they know it. it's like yeah peter cushing you know he just throws together a couple of candlesticks you know he's got a cross <laughs> Well, what's funny is is that uh, I love it. Um, you know, this movie seems to be not so interested in uh, you know sort of Christian iconography so far as like fighting vampires up until you know kind of that point. Like Zimmer doesn't you know given what Zimmer does later in the movie, you know he he's, well, again, he doesn't, he doesn't strike me as a candlesticks as a cross kind of guy. Zimmer's not that character. You know, he's not pious. He, he but it doesn't. Also, He's he's out for revenge. He's not doing this because it's the right thing to do. He's doing this because he fucking wants to get revenge. No, I agree. You know, he, he's I, not that kind of guy. But it also feels like this isn't that kind of movie. No. So the well, fact I mean, that like, do you... it was oh, a little sorry. startling when 
he does make the sign of the cross with his blood because I was just like, oh yeah, that's the thing that happens in Hammer movies. You know, it, well, it's a, it's it just, a lore thing. It's you know, it's like he recognizes a vampire, so he's buying into the lore. But do you feel that this movie is in canon with the Dracula movies? Yes. Even though the vampires walk around in daylight. Yeah, I, I to me it's right, and maybe you know it has something to do with all of the other vampire movies that have come, you know, in the wake of the Hammer movies and all of the other adaptations. But to me, it's just a matter of uh, different species. You know, there are different types of vampires. You know, uh, yes. yeah, I some mean... can some can walk in daylight, some can't. Some are affected by uh, the sign of the cross, some aren't. You know, it's so to me like this still occupies the same world as Horror of Dracula and Brides of Dracula, even though the vampires are, you know, of a different breed. It's interesting. I mean, I know the studio basically said that it was its own sort of continuity, but. In retrospect, I mean, one, the let's call it what it is. The Christopher Lee vampire movies got so off the rails that who fucking cares about, you know, Dude. whether or not it makes any sense. Anyway. I was going to say, there, there's no, you know, but, there anyway. but it's, it's to... decidedly not included in the continuity whenever you look up, like, you know, the, the, the flow of these films. Um, I do think, I do like the idea of the original ending a little more. Meaning like, um, so in Disciple of Dracula, which was like the script that this is based on, you know, they do use, they do use black magic to fight against Ravna. But what they do is they summon the spirit, like they use black magic to summon the spirit of Dracula from beyond the grave to punish him, um, and kill him. And actually that was supposed to be for the Baron in Brides. And the punishment was by breaking the code of the vampire by turning his mother. So that was why they were able to do it originally. It was supposed to be like, oh, he broke this uns- this vampire code, so Dracula has come to kill him. Can I say, though, that I'm glad they didn't go with that? Because that is hokey as hell. Like, you know, it's just the, 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 the vampire code. No, that's you know, very that's very hokey, but I do like the idea of summoning the spirit of Dracula. Oh I my god, that's, that's fantastic. So like I, I like that. Um but yeah, no, like if 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 Christopher Lee had showed up and be like, You have broken the code of the vampire, like that would have been pretty dumb. Um not to say that like how he's resurrected in other movies isn't dumb. Uh but I, I would if, I would I <laughs> <laughs> I, I would much prefer, you know, so, somebody getting their throat slit above his ashes, bringing him back, as opposed to somebody summoning him just long enough for him to shake a rule book at somebody. Yeah. So uh, you were going to run through Carpenter's filmography. Go ahead. <laughs> is, oh, is that is this the point of the movie where we're doing that? Right because at the climax, like, right when we should be talking about the movie the most. <laughs> I was going to say we're we're getting the Heaven's Gate vampires. I guess we could. Here. I is guess we could the do the Carpenter we're... thing, like post-movie we always do a brief post-movie chat paul paul hold the fucking horses like you're saying we continue talking about the movie all the way through the end i mean we've never tried it before could we we could try it i mean i don't know i there's a lot going on in this movie (laughs) this is a movie worth talking about 
Oh. You're a fucking madman, but we this, can try it. This might be, can I just say, and I know the movie's not over yet, but this might be the most commentary provided for a movie since the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. Like, this yeah. might be the closest thing we've done to a commentary since then. It might be, yeah. I dig it. But, you know, don't you wish that you knew who made the white robes for these people? Don't you wish that that was a plot point? <laughs> You know, I, I, no, I don't. Um, I, but I do wonder why choose that out of all the things they could have done to Raymond Burr in an additional subplot. Why that? Because it was probably done by executives at Universal who know nothing about storytelling and needed to fill time, wanted to make it misogynistic because they sucked as human beings and they cut out so much of the movie that it wasn't a bankable length. And then they sold it to TV stations and that's how people saw this. And that's one of the reasons a lot of people thought that this was a bad movie was a lot of ways that, you know, people saw the film was on television. Um, but how are we going to shoehorn in these other characters? An executive said to which another executive replied, Robe makers? Robe makers. Got this man a fucking job. Dude, I'm telling you, Jinx, like, get that Blu-ray and watch those scenes. It's insanity how bad it is. Like, it's it's worth watching. It's it because of how ludicrously terrible it is. This guy's giving me, like, some Frankenstein vibes with all his, like, boiling waters and shit. Like, his green vials. I dig it. If he had just had a couple of spinny things... And, Spinny uh, things would have been good, and it, isn't it weird to see Clifford Evans like in this role after his role in Curse of the Werewolf? Like, it's very interesting. I do love I he. I do love the character that he creates here with his performance, oh, yeah. where Great. he is every bit the commanding presence that um, Cushing is as Van Helsing, and yet at the same time. He's so much more rough hewn and a little messy and a little, as a result, a little more dangerous in a way than Cushing's Van Helsing in a great way. I kind of love that. And it's a shame that we, in the same way that we got Van Helsing in further installments in the Dracula series, I kind of wish we'd gotten more Zimmer. I, I actually kind of do too. And I, I like the idea of putting him in with Cushing in a movie. I think that's pretty cool. The only problem with Zimmer is like arguably his whole point in fighting the vampires was for revenge. And once he accomplishes that, like I feel like his character arc is over. But, like, but, I, but, I don't but, know. but the thing about revenge is it never fully satisfies. You think about a character like, uh, sure. you know, the truth in a character like the Punisher, which is, you know, once I get revenge, you know, it, it's not revenge ultimately that they needed. It's a taste of blood, and that never goes away. They get used to the taste. Yeah, I get that. Um, we should note that this ending was the original intended ending of Brides of Dracula, and uh, Cush. The only reason they didn't do it was Cushing like refused. He was like, I will not shoot an ending where Van Helsing calls upon the powers of darkness because he would not do that. And they had to rewrite the whole ending and change it. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing. 
but they hung on to the ending and they kept it. So the whole like bats descending and all that, that was all supposed to be in uh, Brides. And I kind of love that he stuck to his guns on that. And it's hard for me to imagine him doing that because he strikes me as being such a polite like gentlemanly character. But I love that he put his foot down in that instance because, you know, yeah. I think he's entirely right. It would have been out of character one and two. Look at the ending it gave us in Brides. Yeah. The ending in Brides is is phenomenal. And I actually I do really like the ending here. And it makes perfect sense for Zimmer. Like, I completely buy that Zimmer would call upon the powers of darkness, and it's actually a pretty good ending to his story. Um, you know, finding solace in the very pitch blackness that, that took his life away from him in the first place. Um, See, I was kind, kind of joking of interesting before. Thing. I was kind of joking. It was just kind of a gag. But honestly, imagine how interesting it would be to have Van Helsing and Zimmer in the same story and what they represent, you know, one being light, one being the dark, they would totally be flip sides to the same coin. Yeah. I almost feel like they'd be like, like that would be the, the conflict would be them, not necessarily the vampires. And I think that would be kind of a cool way to do a movie like this is have two sort of like heroes fighting against each other in a way. Um, I'm sure there's a plot that could be built around that. Uh, really like the uh, the sort of whirlwinds of this. Um, you know, actually, because of this whole sequence, this movie was supposed to come out uh, side by side with um, uh, the birds. Speaking of Hitchcock, funny really? enough. Really? And Universal delayed it. Because they were worried that this ending and the because this ending, if you watch the trailers, this ending plays really heavily into the advertising, which is crazy because it's just the very end. Um, and they were worried it would it would be too similar to the birds and they would compete against each other. So Universal purposely delayed the release of this film so it wouldn't be accused as being too similar to the birds. That is insane. Um, yeah. Because this is nothing like, I mean, no. No, nope. I know. I know. But in the trailers, you see bats attacking people a lot. Like, it you does, see you know, shots of this. I, I never would have expected to make this reference, but, you know, um, in a weird way, it reminds me of the uh, the finale to the Crow City of Angels. So, you know, there's that. There you go. I like that movie. <laughs> I do too. Gonna say it for all of its uh, for all of its many Um, problems. uh, It is it is a beautifully all of the problems with that movie are are with script. You know, it's a carbon copy of the first movie where they changed a couple of things. So paint by numbers, but the filmmaker like that is such a gorgeous, moody as hell film. I love everything about it from a technical level. The photography. Uh, the, the the score, my God, Graham Ravel's score, the 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 soundtrack, the it's just so damned well made. So this is really evocative, like the bats, like on her chest, like scantily clad women with the bats. Earlier, you saw a bat climbing up a girl's leg and like basically humping it. All of this was supposed to be sexual in nature. Um, Paul, please, and again, the. Uh, the BBFC had like a ton of problems with it. Also, one fun thing I read was that um, in theaters, they would release black paper bats uh, during that scene 
or they wanted to hammer pushed for it, like to take the idea from William Castle. Um, they didn't end up that. doing it, but they actually pitched it the theaters to release like back bat, black paper bats in the theaters during this scene, which I think is like super fun. I love it. Yeah, I now, think that's is, a really. You know, this is a very sort of fifties monster movie kind of way to end the film, and yeah, not the yeah. first Hammer film to do it, but you know, the monster is dead. Cut the credits, you know, but. I wonder, what do you read in the final moments between our married couple at the very end? You know, because there is there is a way to read that where it's very much like uh, Mina being released from, uh, you know, Dracula's sway, you know, uh, in the final moments. But at the same time, like, there's that look in her eyes where she isn't necessarily relieved. Yeah. Well, I think they've learned a bit about themselves. Um, I think she has the kind of, I think they each have to live with what these events have conjured up inside of them. Um, and that, you know, and again, I think this is a movie about moral ambiguity. I think this is a movie about, um, gray areas of life. And I think that the reality is there isn't a ton of chemistry between them. And that is required for a truly fulfilling romantic relationship. Um, and that isn't something you can force. Um, at the same time, they've each lived through something really traumatic and they're now sort of intrinsically tied to each other and they're married. So I think it's more of a reconciliation of, you know, we're going to have, we either have to accept the life that we have or decide we're going to make a change. And we don't know what our future holds. Um, and that lack of knowing that uncertainty um, is sort of what I see shared between them at the end. And that is such a different thing than what you normally get um, at the end of, of a hammer movie. Usually the hero's going to triumph and there's like a moment of brief celebration or just, you know, a denouement of, you know, the, the villain is, is taken out and that's that, you know, I, I think this particular ending has a lot more nuance to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, and I love it for that. I, uh, I think it gives the end of the movie enough heft that, you know, that, that sort of, that ending where we immediately cut to the credits, it doesn't feel abrupt in the way that it might in other movies, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, it's a great movie and it's, it's a, it's a turning point for hammer. Like it's, it's where things change. Um, and I think you can really look at that movie and see the change occur as it's occurring. And it carries hammer into a place of relevance. That's, again, very important for its longevity. Um, and it would only be a few short years before Hammer would kind of fall off the face of the map. You know, we were already heading towards a very big dramatic shift in what horror was. You know, 1968 would bring Night of the Living Dead and everything changes after that. And once the 70s hit, Hammer is desperately trying to cling to trends that they're just not suited to make movies with, <laughs> you know? Um, 
so it, it, it it's a very interesting time for Hammer um, and horror in general. But I think the 60s is when they handle handle those changes the most graciously. And I think this movie is really what allows them to do that. No, I agree. And it is curious that they followed this movie up with something that I think is just, just fantastic. Now, they do a couple of, uh, you know, kind of psycho riffs with Paranoiac and uh, Maniac. But yeah, which if you're cool with, we can skip uh, because I don't necessarily consider them hammer horror with uh, capital H's. But they do a horror comedy directed by William Castle, no less, called The Old Dark House, the remake of yeah. the Universal James Whale film. So if you're interested, I think we might make that our next episode. What do you say? Uh, that sounds great. Rock on. <laughs> Okay, so we now find ourselves uh, w- with the movie having ended. Uh, so, so we're at the post movie chat portion of this episode. What are we doing? Do you do you, do you want to do the? Uh, I I have yet to make my Carpenter Hooper Craven point, but uh, we can uh, we can we can do the Carpenter filmography real quick if you want. I say we do it. Um, can I take it, the briefest of brief uh, bathroom breaks really All really right. quick? That's fine, but when you get back, uh, I, I will entertain the listeners up until that point. But uh, when you get back, I will take a break to make a, a, another drink. Okay, I think that's fine. What a, but, but here's the thing. What am I going to talk to the listeners about? At least give me a subject, something to regale them with. Ooh. Um, Better hurry, Paul. Your bladder depends on it. This is, yeah, this is tough. Uh, your least favorite Hitchcock movie. Oh, oh, damn. All right. Yeah, go. <laughs> Okay. All right, I'm going. Shit. I'll be right back. <laughs> huh. Hi, listeners. Jinx here. Paul has left me alone to talk to you about my least favorite Hitchcock film. But I say to you, why would I talk about my least favorite when I could talk about my most favorite? And, well, as we already talked about, my most favorite is assuredly Psycho. I adore this movie. It is one of my favorite movies ever made. I love everything about it. As Paul mentioned, it is a perfect film but you know what's crazy i love the psycho sequels as well that's right i think psycho 2 is absolutely incredible now i know there are people out there that actually find psycho 2 to be a better film and you know those people are crazy but you know they have a good point in that psycho 2 is a great film and inarguably one of the best horror sequels ever made but you know what even though everybody pays, you know, all due props to Psycho and Psycho 2, it seems like less people appreciate Psycho 3, which is actually directed by series star Anthony Perkins. Now, I think Psycho 3 is a fantastic film. Certainly it has its weaknesses, but you know what? It's doing some really interesting stuff with the character that have been long established by that point, and it's taking some really bold swings. I think Perkins was... Uh, I think it was said that he was very much influenced by the Coen Brothers' first film, Blood Simple, even down to the uh, the film score, which I think I think it was done by Carter Burwell, and it is magnificent. I'm but back. Also, in- shit, I wasn't even halfway through my thought. You know what? You just gotta <laughs> hang tight for a minute, Paul. So, Psycho Three employs some very different stylistic choices uh, in terms of you know how the film was shot. I mean, it's almost like a Jalo uh, at points, you know, and Carter Burwell's score is very different from uh, the Bernard Herrmann score in Psycho and the Bernard Herrmann-esque score that we get in Psycho 2. I think Psycho 3, even for all of its, uh, 
you know, in many issues, is still a fantastic movie. Now, that brings us to Psycho 4, which was directed by Mick Garrison, I think is fucking superb. A lot of people don't like that movie. They're all wrong. Uh, I, I think like it's great. Movie. It's fantastic. And it gives us something that slasher movie, if you want to call the Psycho series a slasher series, which it kind of is and it kind of isn't, you know, or rather it, it kind of isn't, but it kind of is, might be more mm-hmm. accurate. But it, it you know, it's it surely, you know, if Psycho isn't a slasher, it's certainly the, uh, the, the, the granddaddy to them. But by God, the sequels are slasher movies with capital S. But the end of Psycho 4 gives us something that, slasher movie icons rarely enjoy it gives its character a definitive ending uh and it does so not by killing him spoiler alert but simply by bringing his story to a close uh there there is no hanging thread at the end of it there is no need for a follow-up and it completely pays off norman bates as a character and i adore the film for doing that and it does it in a really really powerful way uh, and again, Psycho 4 isn't without its faults. It surely has them. But I think overall, you know, the performances, uh, the skill with which it's directed, and ultimately the story that it tells, and the final moments that it uh, all builds to, I, I, I think it's all wonderful. Uh, now, that brings us to uh, the Psycho remake, to which I say no. But then that takes... Okay, you know what? It's easy to shit on the Psycho remake, and I surely did just then. But I will say one thing about the Psycho remake. The Psycho remake, I think, is one of the most important movies ever made. Hear me out. It's also terrible. Hear me out. I think more so than any film school lecture, anything that you could read in a book, any any lesson that could be taught to anyone about the importance of a director's own personal relationship to the material they're telling, there is no better way to illustrate it than by simply viewing Hitchcock's Psycho and Van Sant's Psycho back-to-back, because you could tell the difference between the two movies. When everybody shits on the Psycho remake, you know, uh, what, what exactly did they not like? Do they not like the screenplay, which was also the exact same screenplay that the original movie had? Do they not like the shot selection, which by and large was the exact same shot selection? Do they think that the cast is terrible? Because you look at the cast of the Psycho remake, the cast is actually comprised of really good actors capable of great work by and large. So why is one movie a masterpiece and one movie fucking terrible? And I think it all comes down not to skill. Gus Van Sant is a very good director, but it all comes down to what the story means to each of the men telling it. Psycho, even for its story of, well, a psychopath, is obviously kind of personal to Hitchcock. Sure, he's adapting Robert Block, but I, I think he found a lot in that character and a lot in those themes to really wrestle with, and I think it ultimately you know, became a very personal film for him. But you look at Gus Van Sant's Psycho, the, the, the only connection he appears to have to the material is that he really liked the first film by Hitchcock. And he just wanted to do that again. And so as a result, no matter how much money he had, he had he had $25 million from Universal. He had Christopher Doyle shooting it. He had a fantastic fucking cast. He had a great screenplay to work from. And, you know, he, he had Hitchcock's shot list. He should have been able to at least make a good movie, but he didn't. The entire thing comes off as a failed experiment and kind of not unlike a, uh, a high school production of a Broadway play. And that's why I think it's so fascinating and such a worthwhile experiment, even though it failed, ultimately. Uh, anyway, I've spent way too much time on Psycho. Uh, I will say that I love Bates Motel uh, for, for doing what uh, the Psycho remake couldn't, which was to take all of those characters and do something really interesting and different with them. 
Um, I think that pretty much wraps this up. Oh, there is the Bates Mattel from the 80s with Bud Court and uh, Lori Petty. It's fine. Anyway, um, Paul, uh, I, I, I hand the by, mic over to you. By your logic, does that mean the Cabin Fever remake is one of the most important movies ever made? <sighs> <laughs> You're being a real dick to me, Paul. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> No, 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 no. Now no. I feel bad. No, no, no. I'm kidding. I am. I am being I'm kidding. You're trying to make me think while I'm drunk, and I appreciate that on some level. It, but it also pisses me off on like a, a reptile level. Too. Um, I'll I'll now explain why the Kevin Fever remake so. <laughs> no, here's here's why. Here's why. No, the answer to your question is no, and here's why. The first Cabin Fever is no recognized masterpiece like Hitchcock's Psycho. That's thing one. Thing two is that the remake didn't have a hundredth of the level of visibility that the Van Sant Psycho remake did when it came out. Um, I think for a lot of people, that remake doesn't even exist. But here's the thing. I watched I something. It. I saw it. it exists to no, me. No, I, I saw it too. Um, it's not good. No, it is not. But you know what? <laughs> it does something interesting. I love that it at least tried to do something new by taking that original script that uh, uh, fucking Roth did, and it was like, well, what if we played all this straight? What if we did the exact same script, but we pulled out the comedy and tried to tell a straight uh, horror story? And then you watch it, and you're like, well, you tried it. You did try they, it. They you know, did that, try it. That is a, true. It's an interesting idea to do that, you know? You uh, know uh, is a great movie, though. I don't know. I, I like Kevin Fever quite a bit. I, I, I enjoy Kevin I know Fever. I know, like, Eli Roth's the guy that, like, people seem to really hate or love to hate or something. I don't know. It's weird. Cause sometimes I'll bring up Eli Roth and people are like, Oh, Eli Roth. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I really loved Kevin fever and I really loved hostel. So. I did. I did too. You know, when it comes to Eli Roth, I, when it came, the thing with Eli Roth, man, <laughs> and me, uh, you know, us personally, uh, you know, you guys are buds. Cause we're pals. Right. Uh, no, it's it's when it came out. I remember that was one of the first issues of Rumorg that I ever picked up. It had Cabin Fever on the cover. And I remember reading an interview with him. And the guy, even before this seemed to be that much of a thing, because uh, it's totally a thing now. Like any, any, any fucking horror movie now is made by a cheerleader for the genre. But in 2003, that wasn't necessarily the case. So to read interviews with a guy who had just made his debut feature – Talking about the genre in terms of being a fanboy was actually really exciting back then. That was kind of new and cool. Yeah. And so that made me like Cabin Fever probably even more than I would have to begin with, which I do think that movie is really fun. Uh, Hostel knocked me on my ass when I first saw it. Uh, I really dug Hostel too. Uh, I thought Rock yeah, like was great too. as the Bear Jew in uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, you know, and he was suitably slimy for that one scene that he did in uh, uh, Tarantino's Death Proof, you know? Yeah. Um, the the thing with Eli Roth is, is that after that, like, I haven't really cared for his output that much. Um, not as a producer, not as a filmmaker. I didn't really care for uh, 
the Green Inferno that much. Um, yeah, I remember when I first saw it and I did an interview or fuck interview. I did a fucking YouTube video for it where I was like, oh, I actually kind of like this, even though I had all these problems with it. And then the more I sat with the film, I was just kind of like, you know what? Actually, all those problems are leading me to think that I didn't really like that movie that much at all. <laughs> uh, you know, Knock Knock, I think is interesting, but you know, I think, I think the right. It's really interesting, but I think he fails the material more often than that. I hated Knock Knock. I hated it. I And I think that uh, Knock Knock's a tough one to talk about, though, because I feel like it's... I just hated it. It it was... It, it literally is like a movie I hate. It's one of the few... Like, I love uh, Hostel. I love Cabin Fever. I really like Hostel 2. Um, when it comes to Green Inferno, I like it. I don't, uh, I don't get the hate for it. I do not. I mean, I don't think it's amazing, but I think it's good. I, I really don't understand people who hate it. And people are like, oh, the characters are terrible and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, yeah, they're vacuous Americans who think like which, which dedicating the- a moment of your time, you know, like, oh, we're going to help people, but they don't really mean it. Like. That's why, like, yeah, you're supposed to hate them. They suck. That's us. Like, I don't know. I think, I think Green Inferno is a much better movie than people give it credit for. I, I don't understand the hate for it, but I don't think it's, but it's not like a movie that I love enough to like go to bat for either. But you know, he, it's like not worth the, the fight. All the stuff I, I, I don't think it's bad though. Um, it's but, not like, bad, but, but it, knock it, knock. I do not like, and I, I think part of the issue. And the, the this is the weird part of that movie is like, um, I think that the way it's set up, I think the movie should have done a better job of making the two women who sort of like proposition Keanu Reeves's character into being like more i wanted them to be more like sympathetic in some ways like because i needed to side with them more than i did like i don't know i i mean i think it should have either went harder into dark comedy or more into keanu reeves being a piece of shit um and i don't think it did enough of either thing and instead just comes off as like annoying and weird and like i don't really side with anybody and i don't like anybody and i don't like what's happening and it's just unpleasant and nothing about it and there's no message kind of like what you were saying about possessor like that movie has nothing to say about anything it's just a bunch of chaos that isn't fun uh, and the fact that they actually wind up murderesses like if that's word yeah like i don't know and like pointless you know ruining his kids life like i mean because like when his children come home they're gonna see the house marked up with like i don't know i just don't get why that's like why they're doing something good because i think we're supposed to think that they're doing something like just like that's justified and i don't feel that way even though like okay and that's why i don't like talking about it is because it's like do you yeah, think there's a like reading Keanu of the movie that they were never shit. there in the first in the first place? You said what? Do you think that there is a reading of that movie possibly where those characters were never in his house in the first place? Like he is kind of like, you know, he was the architect of his own doom, as it were. Like he, Maybe. I mean, he I lost like his mind the idea. By himself and... 
I actually like the original ending that they cut that that they think undermines the movie. I think it's way funnier. Where like the end of the movie, th- did you watch the alternate ending on the Blu-ray? I bought the Blu-ray. Probably, but I don't remember it. So the alternate ending is basically like after the events of the actual ending, you cut to like six months later and you're in a different house, a different dude. Those two women are there and they're torturing him. You know, they, they've now seduced a different guy because that's what they do. These these women just go from house to house fucking some random husband when his wife is away. Um, and doing everything they possibly can to seduce him, which I also think is kind of like, not that I, and this is why it's really annoying. So it's like, I don't, okay, obviously anybody that cheats on their wife is a piece of shit. They shouldn't do that. But also like, if it's different than him going out and looking for that and then like coming to his house and doing everything they possibly can to seduce him. Like it, it it's a different well, scenario did, that was than a, a guy what, just going out and cheating. Like that was what they were punishing, right? Like they were, they were punishing the fact that he, you know, after that happened, he was just willing to, he was, that. he was wanting to discard them. Like they were nothing. Well, I think they would have like, done what they did no matter what. I, I, that's my personal opinion. I, I but, think you're anyway, right, but I think it would have been much more interesting if that wasn't yeah, the case. I, like, I, I would love to see, like... I wish uh, the imagine... movie done a better... That's what I'm saying, is, like, the movie should have done a better job of making the people being punished be shitty, and not... Because in this way, it just feels more like a trap, as opposed... Which I think undermines the whole message of the movie, as opposed to, like, punishing the wicked, which would have made the movie more powerful. Like, had that movie been, those girls are at a nightclub, and Keanu Reeves', Reeves wife is out of town, and he goes to a nightclub and starts hitting on them. That's a different movie. That's a movie I'd like, right? Where he hits on them, gets them to come back to his house. He's nice to them. He's very kind. He seduces them. Like, that's, then I'm in. I Okay, all right. He deserves this. And again, not that he... And that's that's why I don't like defending it, because it's like, well, he cheated on his wife, so it's like there's really no good defense. But at the same time, like, the way it's done just seems disingenuous to, like, what you're trying to make me feel. So it's more like I don't like the writing. I think the writing is sloppy. I think it's lazy. And I think it's crappy. But at any rate, if you're going to do the writing the way they did it, like then just go full exploitation, which is the alternate ending, which is like six months later, they're in some other guy's house. And then you sort of, Oh, I remember the ending. Keanu Reeves is in the car with like a crazy beard and he looks insane and he's got a gun and he gets up and he goes and they cuts to the girls and there's a knock on the door and the movie ends. And like, that's a good ending because that leans harder into the exploitation effect and it's more fucked up and weird. And it's less about anyone deserving anything and more about just the chaos of what doing what they do would bring upon them. Because they are no better than him. Like, that's my thing. It's like these women who go and purposely seduce these people only to, like, fuck up their lives. Like, that's also bad. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't make them heroes. But I guess that's just how I feel about it. And I think, again, that's because of the poor execution of the film, not because of any moral standing I'm taking on cheating. Does that make sense? 
No, no, I got it. I uh, I do think it would have been far more interesting. You know, imagine a franchise with those characters like popping up in the next movie. Imagine giving them their own Bond sequence, you know, like a pre-credit <laughs> sequence yeah, where like they show up, they do their that, thing. It's yeah. like a quick montage. That'd form. be fun they about get, it. Like, well, they get yeah. they get to the kitchen table sequence where the you know the guy that they've uh, you know seduced or whatever shows up the next morning. They've kind of fucked up the house a little bit, uh, and they're waiting for him to come out. And he sits down, and instead of being a dick, he's just kind to them. He offers yeah. to make them breakfast. He offers to call them a cab and get them or whatever. And they just kind of look at one another like, okay, no, this guy's good. And they get up and you walk know, away. And they just you know what would be hilarious? I have a really good idea for that. So, like, the women, you know, purposely show up at his house, like, seduce him, have sex with him all night or whatever. And they wake up the next day already to, like, punish him. And he comes down and he, like, yeah, he, like, makes some coffee. And he says, he's like, okay, he's like, I just want to let you know. Um, last night was one of the best nights of my life. Um, it made me realize a lot of important things. He's like, I called my wife this morning and I ended it. <laughs> He's like, I called it <laughs> off. I let her know what happened. Um, I, I, I love you. <laughs> like he, he like professes his love. He's like, I'm going to change everything. He's like, whatever we need to do, I want to be with you. And like the, the girls were like, uh, <laughs> Like that kind of thing. That, like, there's a subversive way to do what they're attempting to do, and they they just choose the easy exploitation route, but want you to care in a serious way, and it just it just feels insulting. I don't know. An interesting an interesting way to create conflict with follow up could simply be by having them have a split decision. You know, what yeah, if the guy wasn't that much of an asshole? One of yeah. them is like, okay, let's. He's he's not a dick. Let's bolt, and the other one is just kind of like, look, this is kind of our thing. We just we just kill him, right? Well, no, no, not if not if they're not assholes. Well, no, let's just kill him anyway. You know, um, you know, I, it, that might be the fun hostile two way to tell the story where we know what the deal with the girls is. So he's kind of puttering around the house, cleaning up, you know, making them breakfast, being cool, and then in the background they're having this argument out of sight as to whether or not they're going to do all the horrible shit to them that we know they're capable of yeah yeah are we writing a knock knock sequel i i think we are and i don't like knock knock like again knock knock is like my least favorite eli roth movie um that's right we were talking about eli roth okay so but we were supposed to talk about carpenter we will get there we we gotta we gotta, long, gotta this is gonna be the longest episode, isn't it? We we gotta we gotta <laughs> we got a stepping stone to I don't even know how we got the Eli Roth man, but let's let's just knock that out before we do what we we're gonna I, do. I feel bad about talking about knock knock now. I feel like people are gonna think I'm a shitty person because I'm like def- I'm not trying to defend Keanu Reeves. I just wanna say that I yeah, I'm not trying to defend the guy who cheated on his wife. I'm just trying to like say that the movie itself is not good. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with Eli Roth I is that I feel about those movies how i just told you you know i liked his early stuff i liked that he was kind of a cheerleader for the genre so on yeah. and so forth i i haven't personally seen anything that makes me think like oh that guy's an asshole but he, i've heard from enough people now who you know i have a friend who interviewed him who talks about what an asshole he was uh i listened to a podcast a guy that we both know like on a podcast who talked about meeting him and how much of an asshole he was you know, I've got another buddy who works in the industry who talks about what an asshole that guy is. Uh, you know, I, it just you hear enough stuff and you start to wonder, like, ha- how many people does it take that, you know, calling somebody an asshole before 
you, you know, you, you, you consider the possibility that they're an asshole. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so I'd be lying if I said that that didn't kind of affect, you know, my feelings toward him as a filmmaker. Like, I don't necessarily feel a kinship with him like I did back in 2003 when I was a horror nerd picking up Rue Morgue for one of the first times. And here he is being a champion for the genre and, you know, being a horror fan who made good by making his debut feature Cabin Fever, you know, um, you know, simply because I've heard he's such a fucking jerk. Now, maybe he's not, you know, and I'll give anybody the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's a decent guy and maybe, you know, everybody that I've heard from just had a, you know, caught him on a bad day. Maybe it's a big coincidence. I don't know. But, but yeah, I don't know how we got here. How did we get the Eli Roth? I don't know. Okay. So Carpenter. <laughs> John Carpenter. Carpenter. Um, da, 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 da. let me what see. Oh, we got the Eli He's Roth. Good director. We were talking about you left. I talked about Psycho. I talked about Psycho. Oh, remake. that's what about it the was. Cabin Fever remake. It was the Cabin Fever remake. Okay. All right. So Carpenter. Man, that was a journey. Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, Great movie. The Fog, oh Escape from New York, The Thing, oh, oh my God. Christine, Jesus. Starman, Jesus Big Trouble Christ. in Little China, Prince what? of Darkness, They so Live. Okay, yeah. now I'm stopping here. Why? They live they live nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. Nineteen ninety-four, one two punch, ninety-four, ninety-five, of In the Mouth of Madness and Village of the Damned. Great movies, right? You want to know what happens in between eighty-eight and ninety-four? Memoirs of an Invisible Man happens, Paul. Now, okay. I don't think that's a bad uh, movie. Uh, I would I don't love think it's to a bad launch movie. into a defense of that awesome movie. It's you a can, good movie. You can't. You can't. It's a but great all, movie. Okay. But all I'm saying is, is that you have from 76 to 88, you have that run of films. And then you have Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which I caught in theaters and it holds a special place in my heart because I was a kid when I saw it and I loved it. But all I'm saying is, is that it is a step below that golden run of movies from 76. Uh, okay. I mean, it, but, but it so is it's like every other movie ever. Like, I mean, you can't not, compare not that not run. But but I would say that Memoirs is a much better movie than um, Village of the Damned. I think. Oh, I think oh, Memoirs is is oh, far outranks that oh. movie. I think that's his weakest in that run. <gasps> Village of the Damned, absolutely. Oh. That movie's got problems. <laughs> and Memoirs <laughs> of Invisible Man. You know one. what? We go from '94. We go from In the Mouth of Madness, which is one of right. my favorite movies. It's in my that, personal. To me, that's that's where that's the end of like the best stuff. Everything else after that is sort of like, you know, they're not bad. I mean, I I like Village of the Damned. I really like um, the beginning. I think like the like when everyone's sort of like knocked out and all that. Although, have you seen the original, the original yes. Warner Brothers film? I think that film is like way better and way more interesting than what Carpenter did, which frustrates me. Like, like that movie has a bigger scope, which is crazy. Cause that movie talks about how it happened all across the world. Like they go to like a map and they're like, Oh yeah. Like there were, there were villages and settlements all across the world. And this settlement, they killed all the kids. And this one, they did this. Like, I love the idea of, like, world building it and not really understanding what was going on. Whereas Carpenters feels so small by comparison. 
I like that choice though. And I, if I'm being honest, I, I think it is a solid movie in its own right. Um, but I just, I, man, it, Christopher Reeve was great in it and we were robbed. Of... It's a good, no. And again, I don't not like it, but I don't like it as much as his other stuff. And I, I think it, I think it has like a weak third act. I think it, I think it doesn't amount to enough. Because I think the beginning's really good, and I just don't think it builds to anything really special, personally. That was my problem with it. Um, I I like it. I like the score. I think the performances are good. Uh, again, I think it has a great opening. I think I think the way he handles the whole like people pass out and wake up pregnant thing is really really well done. Um, but Memoirs of Invisible Man is just a much more fun movie. With a lot more interesting things. And again, that movie has some of the best optical and practical effects work like yeah. in the 90s. And people don't talk about it enough for that. Like the scene where he's running and he takes off his clothes, like where the invisible man is running away and he like slowly takes off his clothes is one of the most impressive effect sequences ever in a movie. And we and you never hear it come up when people talk about effects. I never hear people bring that movie up, but it's so shockingly impressive, <laughs> you know. And like when the building's disappearing, like parts of the building are, are uh, becoming invisible. That's amazing. Um, you know that that alone makes the movie worth mentioning amongst his best stuff because it's so ambitious. And what it's attempting to achieve with the effects. I don't you, know. Uh, you I know like what that. maligned Carpenter movie that I like? What's that? Vampire? Ni- 1996's Escape from L.A. Oh, I love Escape from L.A. Which is followed Huge. by 1998's Vampires, which I do love. It's uh, it's not as good as John Stakely's novel, which I read back in the yeah. day and is friggin' amazing. But... uh. But I do love I do love Carpenter's Vampires, even even for all of its uh, issues, and even for uh, you know I'll admit it. Like James Woods is great in that movie; he's friggin' fantastic. So Vampires it, is a weird movie for me. I I think it has phenomenal sequences in it, like the 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 hotel room sequence, like early in the film, is is amazing. Um, again, I feel like I, I feel like that movie suffers from a really weak finale i think the third act just does really work for me it feels anticlimactic i I don't feel like it builds to enough i don't know i just man i don't get that at all it doesn't work for me i don't know i'm sorry the priest raid. okay one the jailhouse raid um you didn't tell me they could do that i didn't know they could do that that entire exchange Pulling them out, the sun going down, uh, friggin' talking about Phantom of the Opera last uh, last episode. Maybe I need to Herbert, watch it again. It's been Herbert a long time. Lom's villain, uh, the entire exchange between he and Woods's Jack Crow, Crow being on the cross, and the priest saving him by driving the jeep, firing the arrow, and literally winching him out of the situation, like. I, I now admittedly everything after that moment, like chasing them out of town, like they have to do that weird sort of like uh, brief montage with fades where you get the feeling there was a big battle that we don't actually get to see. That's what I'm talking about. But like, but we had gotten so much up until that point, And then the fact that it's all capped 
with that great moment between uh, Woods and uh, Daniel Baldwin, and you know, with the Cheryl Lee I just, character, and, I, sort and of I'm not going to lie, like it's it's hard to watch Woods. I can't really He's, enjoy. Yeah. I get it. Woods performance anymore. And I, I know that's like not a legitimate thing, but no, like, it is. It is. I get it. It it's hard. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I need to give the movie another shot. I have not, I bought the, uh, scream release of it, uh, because I'm a completist, but I haven't watched it yet. The last time I saw it was when I got the twilight time Blu-ray. Oh yeah, um, I bought that one, so but I have not picked up the Scream Factory. It's isn't it funny, by the way, that I'm talking about this movie I don't like and how I've bought it twice on fucking Blu-ray. Like I've literally <laughs> paid for it twice, <laughs> even though I'm like, yeah, I didn't really like it, but I bought it twice. <laughs> well, it's anyway. Carpenter. There's a lot of good. Yeah, work. it is. Um, I'll buy anything he made. Yeah, I, I, I hope it's, you know. I I get what you're saying with James Woods. That's the thing with like. You know, it's what we were talking about with Connery before. Like, I, I, I hate the actor, but you know, I still like James Bond. You know, I still sure. like, uh, I still like Henry Jones Senior. You know, uh, I well, I won't say that I like the guy in Marnie because holy shit. Um, yeah, don't like happens. him in Marnie. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, Good actually, Marnie's but... the one movie where you can watch and think of him as the actor, exactly, and yes. actually still appreciate the movie. Exactly. Um, but no, it's the same thing with Woods. Like, he's a despicable human being, but, you know, I, I, Max Wren is a fucking fantastic character in performance, you know? Uh, he's great in Cop. He's great in Vampires. Uh, there, there are so many films that he is, you know, just fucking fantastic in. Uh, but, right. you know, I, yeah, I just have to make actor. my peace with the fact that, you know, the, the actor who brought those characters to life is a piece of shit. But, you know, but at the same time, he doesn't have sole ownership over those characters either. You know, that's, right. that's also a director crafting a performance with his actor. That is the writer giving him the words to speak. You know, that is, uh, yeah, you know, it's, so it's, it's a stuff. shame to punish a movie. And I, I, I'm hoping in time I'll be able to divorce one from the other. And, I, and I'll give Vampires another shot. I want to like it more. And, and, I, and I don't not like it. I just don't like it as much as the other Carpenter films. But I will say this. I adore Escape from L.A. I think Escape from L.A. is a great movie. I think it's exactly what it should be. I think Carpenter knew what he was doing. And I'm sad that uh, Ghost of Mars was not Escape from Mars as it was supposed to be. You know, I wish we had gotten the Snake Plissken outer space movie because that would have been the perfect way to follow up Escape from L.A. The only way to follow that up is to go crazier and more outlandish. I... Ghosts of Mars would be so much better with Snake Plissken in it instead of uh, Cube's Desolation Jones. But I will say this, like, the problems that that movie has could not be fixed merely by plunking Snake Plissken into the plot. And it easily would have been the worst in that trilogy had it been a Snake Plissken movie. I don't know that it would have been the same movie had it been the escape i think don't you think so one and again i'll say this right now i have not seen 
uh, Escape from Mars. I have not seen Ghosts of Mars like since before I knew who John Carpenter was. <laughs> so fun story. I realized later on in life that the first John Carpenter film I ever saw was Escape from or uh, <laughs> I did it again was Ghosts of Mars. That was the first John Carpenter film I ever saw. Um, and I was not a horror fan. I had never seen any horror movies. I saw it in the theater because it was just a movie that had come out and my friends and I went and saw it. I was like, well, that was dumb, <laughs> you know, like whatever. And that was like the only time I ever watched it. <laughs> so I've not seen it since before I even liked horror movies. Um, I've been sitting on it because I want, I want to revisit it, but I like, I, I just, I'm like saving it for the right moment. And I, I'm wondering what it's going to be like. Cause I feel like it'll be watching it for the first time, you know, cause I barely remember anything about it, but now I know the context of the fact that it was intended to be an escape movie. And I feel like had it been an escape movie, he would have tried harder. That's what I think. I think he would have tried to make it a better movie. So I don't know that as it is, I think he kind of phoned it in based on everything I've read. And that I think had it been an escape movie, he would have actually like given it his all. I, yeah, maybe. And you would hope that uh, Kurt Russell would have, you know, especially at that point in his career would have insisted on a little quality control, you know? Like, well, yeah, because Kurt Russell, when that movie came out, Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell had a pretty good run. You know, like in the 90s, he was a pretty big star. Um, You know, and when did uh, when did Ghost of Mars come out? What year was that? Was that uh, 2002? So that kind of would have been at the end of his run. That was like post Soldier because Soldier was a pretty big movie. Um, But like. I think that I think it would have been a really different movie had it been an escape movie. I think as it was, he was not super happy with really much of anything. And Carpenter's the kind of guy who just feels like at that point in his career was just going to check out. He was just like, fuck it. I'll make this movie, but I'm not happy about it and I'll do what I got to do, you know? Which is such a bummer that he followed up that run of films with, you know, it kind of peters out by Ghosts of Mars. That was 2001. He did two episodes of Masters of Horror. And then in 2010, he did The Ward, which was his last film. And it, it is, there's nothing about it that's John Carpenter to me. Like, I, watching that film, like anybody could have made that movie. Um, I didn't see it, but he didn't uh, even shoot it in scope, man. Like, Come on. What well, from on? everything I've read and everything I've heard, like he just kind of did that movie. Like he wasn't super into it. He wasn't happy about it. And he, he was kind of over it, you know? Um, I thought cigarette burns was pretty good. I don't I know. I actually really I liked that. Was, one. Yeah. I, I liked that one. I did not like his second one. Uh, pro-life. It was terrible. Yeah. I did not like that. Um, but I think that was more the writing. I really hated the script for that one. Um, but but Cigarette Burns was like classic Carpenter. Like I was like, oh, this is really, really good stuff. I wish it had been so. feature length and just a film instead of, you know, kind of a 50 minute. 
you know. Yeah, I think that's probably the final. To me, that's kind of like the final Carpenter film is Cigarette Burns. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. I think that's about as good as we're gonna get filmically from him. I mean, now he's kind of all in on music, which is great. But I desperately wish he would just. I mean, yeah, I wish he would just go. You know what? I'm gonna make one because these days, like, if he decided, if John Carpenter said, I'm going to do one last hurrah. I'm going to make one last big horror film. I wish he would. I gotta fucking believe someone like Blumhouse would go, here's $5 million. Go do it. You know? I can't imagine he would have trouble getting it financed. He really decided he was going to do that shit. Somebody will pay for it. I get that in the mid-2000s, it was hard for even the masters to get money to do stuff. But we're beyond that. We have companies now that are successful and have money and will finance those movies. I mean, like, there's no way a Blumhouse wouldn't, like, allow John Carpenter autonomy to make a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I hope we do get that from him. I hope we get that one last movie. I want to see him go out on top because he deserves it. But right now, you know, I don't Lord think he's, I mean, to be honest with you, Jason, it. and it's sad to say, but I think that we're not going to see anything else from him. I mean, from a movie perspective, I think we'll see more music, which is awesome. I'm glad he's still creating, but I think his movie days are kind of done. I don't think he has any interest in doing it. So therefore, I don't think he'll do it. I shall continue to be a foolish optimist and believe that he has that. It would be wonderful. (laughs) Well, it just sucks because like, you know, when Hooper was still alive, like he was trying to make movies, but he couldn't get money. You know, he, he he tried to make films. He made some films in the two thousands, but like he never had support from a studio or a backer. Same with Romero. And it sucks because if those guys had (laughs) lived just you know, a couple more years, they would have got into the Blumhouse age and, and they would have gotten money. Can, you know what I mean? I can't imagine like a company like Blumhouse, not giving Romero a couple million dollars to make a zombie movie. You know yeah. what I mean? Like why, why the fuck wouldn't they, it would be stupid not to do that. Like they would have, but these guys, unfortunately were but, just but, old enough and we were again, just behind the curve on horror. At the same time, you know, but, but Plumhouse, you know, Paranormal Activity was what, 2009? They were giving guys like Rob Zombie a million dollars, you know, and uh, a final cut on movies like Lords of Salem. And depending on how successful they felt the final product was, they would either go to theaters or go direct to video uh, with them. You know, they, they Romero didn't pass away. Until 2017, he's only been gone for three years, and his struggles with trying to get his movies uh, uh, financed are are well documented throughout the years. So, you know, I as as much as I would like to believe that, you know, a, a Blumhouse would have reached out and helped him out, like they they had the better part of a decade to do just that. Yeah, you're right, and that kind of makes me a little bit. And I've thought about that before, and I'm kind of like, man, they talk about being like this house of horror and supportive of the masters, but where were they? 
you know, like what, why were we not supporting their visions when yeah. we could have been same thing with um, Hooper, you know, Hooper didn't pass yeah, away until that's true. Was it 14, 15? It's incredibly frustrating because we're giving, you know, up and coming. I mean, yeah, you gotta give up and coming filmmakers that right. But, you know, why, if these masters are here, why, why would they languish? Why would now, we not, you know, bring them on? The flip side of that is, is that maybe they have no interest in going backwards when it comes to budget. You know, like you said, $5 million for a carpenter, $5 million to make a horror movie sounds like good money now. That probably sounds like peanuts compared to what Carpenter had to work with back in the 80s, you know, even with some of the smaller movies. True. So maybe true. he would have no interest in, you know, getting in the muck and doing something for, you know, a, 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 what he might see as a cut rate budget. Um, well, and I know they offered him the new Halloween. Like, that that happened. They tried to get him to do the new Halloween. Um and he did not want to do it. He, they, and they offered him a budget. I mean, that movie had a decent budget. The sequels had even better budgets. Um, and he flat out said, like, I do not want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to direct these movies. Um, but I'll be a part of it and I'll write the score as long as it's in line with what I see this franchise is, or what these movies is being, you know, and and frankly, what are your thoughts on Halloween twenty eighteen? Um, I like it. I I don't I you know I see people saying that it's their favorite after the original. Oh, I don't no, see that. No I don't get that. Um, I like I Halloween four more than the new Halloween. I mean, I, that's, I, that's how I feel. But I I like Carpenter's movie. Halloween two. Yeah. Halloween four. Yep. Uh, and you know, I'm going to go probably three. I probably put three above it. (laughs) Halloween H two O. I wouldn't put it above H two O. I put this above H two O, but I have issues with H two O. I, I love H two O. I would, I would, uh, I would say I prefer it by degrees, uh, by leaps and bounds. And I know you're probably going to hang up, uh, I would, I, yep, I'm going to say it. Uh, I prefer Zombies Halloween 2 to uh, God damn 2018. Man. Sorry. Damn. Uh, it's, oh, we I can't, can we can't talk here. about that, though, or I'll get in trouble. Like, I'm not allowed to talk about the zombie stuff because, well, yeah. Okay. You know how I feel. All right. <laughs> now, okay, we, we got to wrap this up. We are going, we're, we're going to make a three and a half hour long show. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. Uh, okay, so Craven. This was our, our, our... 1972, starting at Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, Deadly Blessing, Swamp Thing, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Deadly Friend, The Serpent and the Rainbow, Shocker, The People Under the Stairs, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Vampire in Brooklyn, Scream, Scream 2, Music of the Heart, Scream 3, Cursed, Red Eye, uh, a segment in uh, Paris Jatim, uh, My Soul to Take, and Scream 4. Now, that's Wes Craven's filmography. Now, with John Carpenter, we have a run in the 70s and 80s that I think is damn near untouchable as far as the overall quality of the movies. Sure. When we look at Craven's work, the quality is up and down. 
Like it's hit and miss, you know, for right. every nightmare on Elm street we have, we have a deadly friend, you know, yeah. for every people under the stairs, we, <laughs> we, 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 we have a shocker. I like shocker, but come on. Um, dude, shocker is so fun. It's got it, it discount is, it's, Keanu it's Reeves fun. in the, in the lead role. Discount Keanu Reeves. Peter Berg. I uh, love him. Uh, until I don't. Uh, but um, but the thing is with Craven, the difference there is that even though the quality can you know vary wildly, comparing his filmography to Carpenter's, it's so much more imaginative. And yes. he, in every decade, he released an iconic movie. You know, uh, yeah, the, Craven, the kind of like Craven the genre changed the different. genre more than any other master. Like he affected the the course of horror more than any other director, um, except for maybe like Alfred Hitchcock, right? Like, I mean, in, in terms of like where things went because of his movies and how prescient he was. Like the thing I'll give Craven, I think Craven was probably the most prescient filmmaker in horror at that time, and and he. Like he called meta horror 15 years before meta horror was really a thing. You know, new nightmare is like a movie that could have come out in 2015 and it's, it's friggin' fucking, fucking crazy. Fantastic. No, I, I agree. I a hundred percent agree. Like, and that's the thing. If you, if you said to me, Hey Paul, who's your favorite horror director? I, it would be really difficult for me to choose. And, and, craven in terms of like carpenter probably has the quality but craven has my my heart <laughs> okay you so know? we go from that we 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 go from I, and i agree with you um but we go from carpenter who has just that run of movies where you know we're we're held at that same wonderful note from movie to movie to movie we go to craven and much more up and down but when when he hits, he hits, right? Now, sure. we go to 1974. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eaten Alive, The Fun House, Poltergeist, Life Force, Invaders from Mars, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Spontaneous Combustion, I'm Dangerous <laughs> Tonight, Night Terrors, Body Bags, The Mangler, The Apartment Complex, Crocodile, Toolbox Murders, Mortuary, Gin. Here we have a filmography that is not as rock solid as Carpenter's. Mm-hmm. Here we have a filmography that is not overall like as imaginative or genre redefining as Wes Craven's. But I will say this. As much as I love The Thing, as much as I love A Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, you know, as as much as I love any number of movies from the previous two guys we talked about. Yeah. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is hands down like a fucking masterpiece and better than any other movie any of those three guys made. Uh, that's the difference I see, uh, you know, amongst those three guys. You know, they they offer us very different things. And, you know, but 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 their claims to fame are quite different in terms of their output, I think. Cooper made a movie that didn't just change the genre. It kind of defined it. Um, and I think that's something that the other masters can't really sort of hold up, 
you know. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of those movies that will forever be chilling, forever be affecting. It will never lose its palpability, whereas a lot of the other movies sort of do diminish over time. You know, I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre quite a few times, just like I've seen Halloween quite a few times. Halloween is not as viscerally disturbing as it was maybe the first time I saw it. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is (laughs) and always will be, I think. Um, you know, he captured something with that movie. Um, I, I don't know how he did it. I don't, I don't quite, I can't even really put words to it, but there's something animalistic that's captured the film that is unique to that movie. Um, and it earns him the a right to be labeled as important as any other filmmaker there there ever has been you know so he's he's so horrors orson wells you know he could have dropped the mic after yeah. that first movie he still did plenty of interesting things after that and none of them well, you know I quite mean, at the level of his debut but of, still well some of his movies are some of my favorite movies i mean poltergeist is one of my favorite horror films easily um and he made that movie um you know and some of his films are a ton of fun like they're and honestly i i kind of agree with patrick bromley with the fun house is a great movie i love the fun house um and every time i see it it gets better you know i have you ever I read think, the novelization no i haven't i i'm i'm yeah, I'm bad. I need to read way more. There's a ton of things. Reading wise, I'm like so behind on everything. But um I love the fun house. I think the fun house is a beautifully directed film. I think it's incredibly atmospheric. I think it's a great slasher. Um I I think it's one of the best of its kind. Um, you know, he Hooper has a, a way of making very affecting movies that are incredibly visceral. Um, that is unique to him. You know, Craven has a lot of heart and in- intellect. Um, Carpenter is just raw sort of visual prowess. You know, there, there's something powerful about every shot in a Carpenter film um, that, that lends itself to genre filmmaking. I really wish I could see what John Carpenter's Firestarter would have looked like. I wish I could see that movie. I would give anything. But um, at any rate, yeah, I think I think all three offer something interesting and unique, um, and I, and that's what I love about our masters is that they none of them are quite that similar to the other. You know, they each are doing something different. No, I agree. I agree. And with that, Paul, we're at three and a half hours. Can you believe it? Jesus. Yeah. I I, I mean, these uh, these commentaries for these like 90 minute movies are really, really going into some interesting places here. I love it. Well, I wonder if people are glancing at the runtimes, like they're glancing at the titles 
and then they're glancing at the runtimes of the episodes and just wondering what the hell's gone on. Maybe it's possible, but uh, you know, hopefully someone listens to this and thinks it's fun and has a good time. That's my hope. fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, Paul. With that, I think we're gonna sign off here. Uh, now, you know what? I, I think we did away with it last episode, and I'm not sure we ever need to bring it back. Do we need to tell people where they can find us? Like, they know, nah, right? Nah. You know where I'm at. We're, we're out there. We're out there, people. It'll be on the tweet. <laughs> Paul, are you, are you... How many beers have you had? You are starting to, like... You're, you're sounding like... You know when you listen to podcasts and you can yeah. mess with the speed options? You're, like, on half speed. You're half speed Paul right now, and I'm oh, wondering... Half speed. Are you Are you... Are you tired, or have you had a lot of beer? I think it's a combination of both. I, I haven't had... I've probably had less beer than you think. I think I've had four beers, which is a lot, I think. I don't know. It's <laughs> well, more I had than, a, like... I had, a, I had a tall, nutty Irishman, uh, which, okay. <laughs> which is a Bailey's Irish Cream for Angelica and a splash of uh, Half and Half, which was marvelous. And I actually started the evening out. Uh, one, one of the best things from a bad relationship I ever got was hanging out with a girlfriend's brother once. And he introduced me to the notion of mixing bourbon cream and root beer. And Paul, let me tell you, it's just fantastic. So if you ever get the chance to try it, definitely do that. It sounds really good. Yeah, and I, I'm tired, too, because I've been up since, like, uh, way too early this morning, like 6 a.m. this oh. morning, and now it's, like, 1 a.m. So I'm about five hours away from 24 hours. <laughs> no, that's all. Sleep in, sir. Sleep in. <laughs> but uh, that's part of probably why it sounds slow. So I apologize to our listeners out there. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, keep the energy up. <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, we're going to go ahead and knock off here. Uh, find us out there. You, you listen to past episodes if you don't know how. I'm I'm just sick of talking about Twitter. They, and they know. They know you, where you, I'm at. You know. You know where we are. Um, other than that, you know what? If you're listening, maybe find us. Tell us what you think of these episodes. I'm seeing the numbers. I know you're out there. I know you're listening. Just talk to us. Just reach out. Say, hey, we'd appreciate it. We'd like hearing from you. It's nearly the holidays, and that's all Jinxie wants for Christmas, is for all of his listeners to just reach out and say, hey, we think you're kind of a douchebag. I'll take that. I'll appreciate that's that. Acceptable. Yeah. That's acceptable. Uh... And I, 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 I want to you know, thank you all for listening, if you are out there, even if it's just a couple. And, uh, you know, yeah, say hi. Happy holidays. <laughs> All right. Oh, God, you know what? I do have to have kind of an outro because we need something to tack the music onto at the very end of this to lead us out. So, you know what? I guess I will do kind of an outro spiel. Ready? Ah, uh, hell. Uh, <clears throat> please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Be sure to scream at us on Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts. And I, you know what? I'm not giving my own personal. You, you know where to find it. Yeah, music, music, music. Seth, you can cut anytime you care to. Again, much like you did the previous episode, you can cut right in the middle of my... 